The American Melody Hour, usually presented at this time by the makers of Bayer's Aspirin, will not be broadcast tonight due to the special program which follows immediately. From the Grand Ballroom of the Hotel Waldorf Astoria in New York City, Columbia brings you the opening of the fourth and final session of the 16th Annual New York Herald Tribune Forum, whose theme this year is Modern Man, Slave or Sovereign. The speakers are Secretary of State George C. Marshall, head of the United States delegation to the General Assembly of the United Nations, who will speak on the reconstruction of Europe, and Hector McNeil, British Minister of State and head of the British delegation to the General Assembly of the UN, whose topic is Britain's role. The speakers will be introduced by Mrs. Ogden Reed, president of the New York Herald Tribune. Mrs. Reed. This country generally... By October of 1947, nearly 11 million babies had been born in the U.S. since the end of World War II. Young parents were staying home with their children. Movie attendance bombed. The 1947-48 season had the largest radio audience in history. Homes with radios jumped 6%, car radios 29%. NBC, CBS, ABC and the Mutual Broadcasting System added nearly 150 affiliates. 97% of the nation's AM stations were now linked to one of the big four. And network revenue topped $200 million. World War II had created fundamental changes in society. While men of all races and creeds were overseas spilling the same colored blood, women mobilized and took charge of the workforce. When veterans were discharged, they returned home with different ideals and what we now call PTSD. As new cars, roads and homes brought young families to the suburbs, racial discrimination came to the forefront in the face of the GI Bill, where a much higher percentage of white Americans were having their applications accepted. Our beloved Secretary of State, George C. Marshall. <laughs> Ms. Reed, ladies and gentlemen. The discussion this evening, as you well know, is directed to the problem of the reconstruction of Europe. On October 29th, the National Civil Rights Committee delivered a report to the White House. The document made 35 specific recommendations, including asking the president to create a permanent federal commission on civil rights. President Truman said he'd study the report with great care and recommended that all citizens do the same thing. I believe is no longer a matter of argument. Americans were organizing. In the year after VJ Day, more than five million struck for better wages and benefits. This hurt key sectors of the economy and stifled production. Consumer goods in high demand were slow to appear on shelves and in showrooms, frustrating Americans who desperately wanted to purchase items forsaken during the war. It caused the largest inflation rise in the country's modern history and the Taft-Hartley Act, limiting the power of labor unions. President Truman was seemingly at odds with Congress over every domestic policy, and his approval rating sank to 32 percent. Re-election the following year seemed unlikely. We cannot stand indifferent to the fate of the nations who are having great difficulty in recovering from the consequences of the war. 
and are looking to us for assistance. These are people who hold the same views of the international conduct as we do. If we are to be successful in our quest for peace in a decent world, we will be constantly in need of their strong cooperation. The U.S. war debt, top $240 billion. Emerging as one of the world's leaders, America was expected to have the largest hand in rebuilding Europe. News outlets reported that, to create European stability, Americans should resume sacrifices they made during the war. Not agreeing to do so, could result in political enemies taking over the continent. Solely with our own internal affairs. Despite our heavy commitments in Germany, Austria, and Italy, while Europe suffered a complete political and economic demoralization, or we must take action to assist Europe in avoiding a disastrous disintegration with tragic consequences for the world. Therefore, the suggestion was made that October, that the as the major networks were enjoying the largest ratings in radio history, one network, the Mutual Broadcasting System, was still struggling to grab audiences. Airing out of WOR in New York, The Shadow was the network's most listened to program. While it pulled a rating of 13, strong for a show airing on Sundays at 5 p.m. Eastern, it was nowhere near radio's top 50. Mutual's top stations, WOR in New York, WGN in Chicago, and Don Lee's KHJ in Los Angeles, all boasted powerful signals and had equal shares in the network. And while Mutual reached 400 affiliates in 1947 and would add another 100 over the next year, many of these were small stations in rural areas. This limited their advertiser appeal. Mutual was run as a cooperative rather than a corporation. As families left cities and farms for the suburbs, the network's shared programming structure left it at a distinct disadvantage against NBC, CBS, and ABC. Those three networks would use their soaring revenue to move into TV. Although some mutual affiliates developed television programming, the full network was never able to launch into the new medium. That's not to say MBS didn't have quality programming, just the opposite. And with Halloween around the corner, tonight, we'll delve into mutual's horror, mystery, and suspense shows of the late 1940s. And the results of their investigations are becoming available. I think it is important that you Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 132. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we go back to the late 1940s and say Happy Halloween with Mutual Broadcasting. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is Halloween by Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians. It's a perfect song to get us into the season's spirit. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wall breakers. And Burning Gotham, 
the new audio fiction soap opera set in 1835 New York City, is very much on its way. Go to BurningGotham.com for teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at Patreon.com slash TheWallBreakers. I don't know if I understand it. I started back in the days when Guglielmo Marconi started, I think. <laughs> now, I've been in it a long time. This is, how many years, maybe? Over 50 years. And it goes back to the days when I first started, and everybody says, how did you ever get into radio? How did you ever get into radio? I forgot. <laughs> I got in, and I guess I was going to school at the time, and if, if any of you know New York City, there is a bedroom called Brooklyn, where we lived. And there is an additional place called Coney Island. And a friend of mine, were walking on the boardwalk, a friend of myself, walking on the boardwalk in Coney Island, when we got to uh, the Half Moon Hotel, and on the floor, on, the, on the, uh, the basement floor, there were a couple of stores. And one of them had the letters WCGU. And I said to this friend of mine, what do you suppose that is? He said, I think it's a radio station. I said, oh? And at that point, a guy came running out and said, can anybody here do anything? And this fellow pointed to me and he says, he plays piano. And he grabbed me, threw me into this studio, which looked like a house of ill repute. It had velvet drapes all around, a solitary piano, and there was a microphone on a stand, and this was known as a carbon mic, a big round mic, and there was, the actual mic itself was suspended on rubber bands. And the man came up to the mic, tapped it, to get the carbons all settled, and said, ladies and gentlemen, we now present that distinguished concert pianist, Mr. Paul Hart. And I looked around and said, who the hell is he talking about? You know. <laughs> he said, what are you going to play? I said, well, I'm going to play Dizzy Fingers, and uh, It Had to Be You, and a few other jazzy things. And he said, wait a minute, you've got to play something classical. I said, oh, I'll play the Minute Waltz by Chopin, a little Bach fugue, and a Beethoven sonata. And when he got finished, he said, you want a job? I said, doing what? He said, playing piano. I said, well, I'm... I go to school, you know, I go to college and I, I just can't take time off. He said, well, we don't start here till about four o'clock. If you come in here and play, say, at 3.30, 4 o'clock on, he said, we'll give you $25 a week. Well, in 1929 or 28, with 29, I guess, it was just about during the Depression, $25 a week was a fortune. I grabbed it and I played piano and had a great time. And eventually I had to make a decision as to whether I wanted to play piano, become an illustrator because I had studied art at the L'Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris, or uh, possibly stay in radio. The man you just heard is radio announcer Andre Baruch. He got his radio start in Coney Island in the 1920s. In the fall of 1947, Coney Island still had one large amusement park, Steeplechase. But Edward Tillyou, son of George C. Tillyou, who built Steeplechase Park, had passed away in June of 1944. Two months later, on August 12, 1944, a fire gutted nearly half of the other large park, called Luna. Nearly a dozen main attractions were destroyed. Unfortunately, building materials were strictly rationed because of World War II. Luna's owners charged a dime to view the ruins. The park, would never fully reopen. 
Coney Island, the world's greatest fun frolic, with its beach miles long, all peppered with people. The place where merriment is king. Two years later, in 1946, Luna Park's land was sold for $275,000. With New York City Parks Commissioner Robert Moses' urging, the new owners announced their intentions to build a housing project on the property. On October 5th, records dismantling the park touched off a four-alarm fire. It burned for 10 hours. By the time the embers went out, only the park's administration building, ballroom, and pool remained. Simultaneously, as Americans began to flood the suburbs, Robert Moses saw an opening. He hated Coney Island's working-class entertainment. Moses was hard at work getting the amusement land rezoned. His plan was to wipe out any traces of Coney's past. During the day, the area was still a hotbed for beachgoers, foodies, and amusement patrons. But after dark, Coney, now filled with vacant land, transformed into a seedy underworld. What's the story concerning the ambulance? Oh, after about two years of trying to really break into big-time radio, I suddenly got myself two jobs in one day. And the times overlapped, and it never occurred to me to give one of them up. You know, the gods didn't want me to have this bounty. They wouldn't have offered it to me. So I accepted it, and then I realized the problem afterwards. I had about seven minutes to get across town in New York from Madison Avenue CBS to WHN, which was at 46th Street and Broadway. I timed myself running, and it didn't make it. So I decided I'd hire an ambulance. I got an ambulance number from the yellow pages. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked them how much they'd charge, and they said, $12 if you're an invalid, $15 if you're not. So why the difference? Said, because it's against the law to carry you if you're not an invalid. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a wild ride. The ambulance was waiting for me, and I tipped the elevator man on both buildings, you know, in advance. Uh, I ran out of the studio. When I finished, it was Merton Marge, the CBS show. The elevator wasn't there, and I nearly broke my thumb pressing the down button. Every second was precious. You Certainly. Know. So there are the ambulance guys waiting for me. And he says, look, now, I can take a chance of going across town. It's a much shorter distance. But I might get caught in traffic even with my siren, or I can go up Madison Avenue and across 57th Street where it's wide, and I come down that way. It'll take a little longer. I mean, it'll, it'll be shorter, even though it seems lo it'll be a longer route. So I said, "All right, go that way." And he started the uh, siren screaming, and and then the siren broke down, <laughs> turned into around 7th Avenue, 57th Street. And he said, "I can get out and fix it, but it'll take about a minute." And he said, and I said "Go ahead, go on right through," you know. <laughs> so he went right through and. The, Cars were jamming on their brakes, you know, to avoid collisions. I got there and I ran out of the ambulance, which was a strange sight for the passers-by <laughs> there. And I would think yeah. I was running from an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> the elevator was waiting for me there, and I uh, got in and uh, took me up. And I just had time to take one gulp of breath and speak. But it taught me a lesson never to try anything like that again. <laughs> Actually, I lost money on the deal after paying for a standing. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a challenge. Hello, I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Yes, this is the crime club. I'm the librarian. Coney Island Nocturne. Yes, we have the story for you. 
Come right over. Crime Club debuted over the mutual broadcasting system at 8 p.m. on December 2, 1946. Each episode adapted one of the stories in the Crime Club magazine. New York stage and radio actor Barry Thompson played the librarian. This episode, Coney Island Nocturne, was broadcast from WOR in New York and heard Thursday, July 10, 1947 at 10 p.m. It featured the just-heard Joseph Julian. Ah, you're here. Good. Take the easy chair by the window. Comfortable? The manuscript is on this shelf. Here it is, Coney Island Nocturne. The very absorbing story of fingers that were nailed by death. Let's look at it under the reading lamp. When Mike Donahue brought Helen O'Malley to Coney Island for an evening of fun, he had only the best intentions. Naturally, he was an officer of the law, a detective, and she was his fiancée. But three hours later, they stood in the middle of a crowded, noisy carnival street. They were faced with a crisis of catastrophic proportions. Mike, I'm afraid I'll never understand you. How many times have I told you never to keep your wallet in your hip pocket? Yeah. If you were just another palooka who didn't know any better, then, well, all right. But you're a member of the pickpocket squad. You're supposed to know. Yeah. Haven't you got anything to say? How much money have you got on you? Enough to get us home. Helen, you're not going to tell the boys at the station house. No, dear. I still expect to marry you someday. I want congratulations, not sympathy. Yeah, well... Hey, Mike. Uh, hmm? Who is that? Look over there, honey, and you'll see a character. Hiya, Mike. I never thought I'd be glad to see you. Benny Gould. You recognize me, don't you? Put me over, pal. I've done a 60-day stretch in a workhouse, and I ain't a bit tired. <laughs> what are you doing down here, Benny? You thought your territory was Times Square. I got a job. I'm going straight, Mike. You don't say. Yep. Got fed up looking through bars. So now I'm a barker for a show up the street. Hey, who's the uh, tomato? Helen O'Malley, chipmunk. Do you consider me fruit or vegetable? Huh? Oh, <laughs> It's a riot, Mike. Is it uh, permanent? Put your hands behind your head, Benny. What? I'm going to frisk you. Now, do you want to put him up, or do I have to coach you? I put him up. You can cut nothing on me. I'm on a level now, Mike. You're an old-time pickpocket, Benny. You know where you cops make a label stick. Once a crook, always a crook. Mike, he wouldn't have your wallet. Maybe not, Helen. But this dip can pick the whiskers off a sleeping cat and get away with it. Okay, Benny. Thanks. Come on, Helen. Hey, wait a minute. Was she kidding about your wallet? You're blocking traffic. Come on, you don't have to be ashamed to tell me about it. I used to be in the business. Uh, you wouldn't be giving it to us now, would you? Look, I know every dip on the island. Give me a chance, maybe I'll get your wallet back for you. Why, chipmunk? Because I'm a good citizen, that's why. All right, Benny, let's go. Hey, what is this, a pinch? You were going to take me to the wallet, weren't you? Well, i got to find it first, Mike. Suppose we do that together, huh? Uh-uh. I ain't putting the finger on nobody. If you want your property, then you'll wait till I nab the guy that's got it, and then I'll bring it to you. Don't argue, Mike. Be practical. That's what I say, sister. I'm doing him a favor. But how is it done, Chipmunk? Coney Island's a big place. Well, I contact a few of the dips, and they spread the word around, that's all. Okay, Benny. It's going to take time, Mike. Uh, meet me at the beach at the end of the boardwalk in a couple hours, 11 o'clock. And don't follow me. We won't. Mike wants his wallet, and I want Mike to be happy. We'll meet you on the beach at 11 o'clock.
boardwalk and... Oh, I think we ought to adopt Benny, don't you? It was his suggestion. Well, we're not exactly alone, Helen. Are you going to worry about that girl all night? Well, she might be watching us. She's fast asleep. Besides, she's a good 30 feet away. Come on, my bashful Romeo. Give me a... Hmm? It's only me, Mike. I didn't want to keep you waiting. Benny, don't you ever blow your horn when you come to a crossing? Blow my... Oh, I get it. Well, I figured it didn't mean nothing. See, there ain't no moon hot. Have you got the wireless? Not yet, pal. You said 11 o'clock, and it's almost half past. Okay, but Coney Island's got a lot of depths, and it's spread out all over. you got to be patient, Mike. How much longer? Listen, i got a couple of dozen guys working right now. Stick around for a little while. You ain't got nothing to lose with that tomato. I'll see you later. Where you going? My boss gets worried when he don't know what I'm doing. So long. Now, Mike, where were we? What do you mean, Helen? When we were so rudely interrupted with a report about nothing. Oh, let's go home, huh? But, Mike... Well, it's a long trip, honey, and I've got to be at the station house at 8 o'clock in the morning. But you Wallace. Then he can send it to me. He knows where. What was that? Thunder, baby, and we'll have to run. I hope it pours. Help me out. All right, come on. I hope it pours for 40 days and 40 nights. Let's go. Wait a minute. We can't leave that girl sleeping there on the beach. No? No, I'm going to wake her up. Oh, of course. Oh, don't be unreasonable, Helen. There's going to be a storm. How would you like to get drenched? Why oh, wait for a storm? You can dampen my spirits. Uh-oh. What's the matter? It's raining. Already? I just felt a drop on my nose. Let's get out of here, Mike. Wait a minute, dear. Oh, excuse me, lady. I think you'd better... Uh, miss. Miss. Why don't you just yell in her ear? I don't think it would do any good, Helen. Well, try it and find out. I just felt another drop. You just can't wake up the dead by making a lot of noise. Huh? Mike, she isn't... She is, Helen. From head to foot. The poor kid. And to think we were sitting only 30 feet away on the same beach. Well, she was dead before we got here, Helen. I'll never forgive myself, Mike, the way I talked about her. But if it hadn't been for that storm that never broke... Mike, I feel terrible. Well, here's something to keep you busy. Her handbag? Yeah, look through it. She might have some identification. All right. I should get to a call box, you know. The local police might hear about this. I'm not staying here alone. I don't know what there is about the dead that scares people, Are you sure she was murdered, Mike? Her skull was crushed with the sandbag. I can't believe a little thing like that could kill anybody. Well, this little thing weighs about ten pounds, honey, and it's packed solid. Well, Mike. What's the matter? Look. Your wallet. Well, I'll be... It was in her handbag. Give it to me. Of all things, that girl, a pickpocket. 20, 25, 30, It sort of shatters your faith in people, doesn't it? 40, so young and so pretty. 40, it's all here, Helen. What's all here? My money. Oh, that's good. Well, aren't you glad? I'm too busy wondering about human nature. Well, postpone it until we get a line on the girl. Come on, keep looking in her handbag. Mike, darling, you may be a detective, but... Then I'll look. That's your job. Oh, dear, a pickpocket. Mike, what kind of people murder pickpockets? All kinds. Well, I mean, pickpockets are the lowest kind of crooks, the bottom of the underworld. They don't work in mobs, do they? Sometimes. Hmm. Maggie Blake. What's that? A name on this identification card. A pickpocket with a... It doesn't make sense, Mike. It never does, honey, until you know what it's all about. Do you? No, but I'm going to find out. That's nice. Where do we start? First, we head to a call box. Get the homicide squad working. As long as we do it together, dear. And after that, we're going to Josie Johnson's Palace of Joy. We're going where? Read it. It's on this business card I found in Maggie Blake's handbag. Oh. Well, as long as they advertise, it should be all right, shouldn't it? Helen, what's wrong with you? You'll never know, Mike, what I thought you were talking about. (laughs) 
It's you. I'm glad to see you again. Where have you been keeping yourself? I went out for a walk, Josie. You're a liar. Hey, now look. I said you're a liar. What are you going to do about it? We're, uh... We're doing pretty good business, Josie. So what? Suckers like the show we give them. I give them. You're only window dressing like a husband should be. But you're not even good window dressing. Uh, Put that bottle back. I haven't had a drink all night, Josie. Put it back and lock that drawer. Oh, just one. There's the key on top of the desk. Use it. Between you and me, I don't care if you drink yourself into pink elephants. But you talk when you're drunk. And that's bad for me. I don't know why I've got to take it from you. Stop any time you want. There's a bed at the bottom of the ocean. Now, give me that key. I started this business. It was my idea to set up the show. That was so long ago, you've died a hundred times since. Where have you been for the last three hours? I told you. Just walking around, huh? Inhaling the fresh Coney Island air. I got tired sitting around the office watching you run things. You said you were going out front for a couple of minutes to look around. So I went for a walk. What's the difference? Came back and you weren't here, so I went out again. How's uh, Maggie Blake? What? Don't look so dumb. You are out with her, weren't you? No. Pete, this is Josie you're talking to, your wife. I've known you for a long time. I haven't seen the girl, I tell you. You, you warned me to lay you off, and I, I... Was she here? Are you kidding? Well, didn't she even bring in the take? Are you calling me a cheat? No, no, wait, wait, Josie, wait a minute. You, you know I don't think you're a doubler, but... Maggie always comes in a few times like the others, and she's pretty regular. She was too busy tonight. Not with me. Shut up, Pete. You're through making a monkey out of me. Josie, you're all wrong. Everybody I... on the island's talking about you and Maggie. I'm telling you for the last time, I don't like it. I don't like people feeling sorry for me. Well, why don't you give her the air? Because she knows too much. Um, Palace of Joy. Josie Johnson talking. Uh, this is Bunny. Got a message for Pete. What is it? Tell him I can't find Maggie Blake. That's all. That's enough, Benny. Nice going, Pete. When did you decide to use Benny as a stooge? What do you mean, Joe? What do you take me for, a two-year-old? You think I start believing because Benny calls up and says you've had him looking for Maggie? Is that what he just told you? You cheap chicken sneak. (laughs) Now get out of here. Go out front and help take tickets. I'm sorry you did that, Josie. Go on, go on. I get sick looking at you. You've been having things your own way too long, baby. Look out you don't drop dead one of these days. You're very funny, Pete. Yeah, yeah. I'm a real comedian, but don't laugh too hard. You're liable to fall out of this world. I was just going to ask you, do you still feel that way about the bag of tricks that uh, the radio actors acquired, or did you gain more respect for them? Well, I gained more respect for them, but even their bag of tricks is quite an accomplishment, you know, in its, in its own right. I don't think that would help them in, in theater or in films, in visual acting. The problem was, I suppose, that there was a limited number of actors who worked regularly. So they had to be flexible. They had to be able to acquire accents. That's right, versatility and quickness. Yeah, and this they had, they were able to work with. This they developed, yeah. 
Well, also, many times they would make these cuts just prior to going on the air. You'd have you'd rehearse a script, and uh, at the last minute, say, cut this, cut this, cut this, and then you go on the air, and you got to remember, you got to do it right, or you, the whole thing will blow up. That's so right. uh, that must be quite a, a skill in itself oh, to yeah. be able to adapt that quickly, because on a stage, once you learn a role, that's it. But on radio, it seemed like it could change up to the last second before you went on the air. That's absolutely true. But you have I had great respect for these actors who developed those techniques. Did you have any uh, particular way of doing it yourself, uh, any of these last-minute changes? Or how did you keep alert so you wouldn't have the problem of uh, saying the line it was cut or run over or anything like that? Well, I, <laughs> I, I don't know how to answer that. You just did it, I guess. That's about the best way to describe it. Huh? I was considered a bit of a nut by many of my peers in radio because I, at one point in my career, was very serious about improving radio acting by learning the lines memorizing lines, even though I didn't have to. I thought, you know, I could relate better to somebody across the microphone if I was free from the script. Mm -hmm. And I found that uh, within the rehearsal period, even though it was short, most parts couldn't be learned. There were only a few paragraphs. And I developed a technique of learning them, and then marking my script places I wasn't sure, you know, so I could always uh, fall back on the script if I had to. Well, you were doing a, actually a, a memorized performance then for the most yeah. part. the worst part of going to Coney Island, the ride home in the subway. Yeah. Oh, well, Benny's confession sort of makes it worthwhile. Imagine that chipmunk having the whole thing planned from the beginning, yeah. picking your pocket and then asking us to meet him on the beach where he'd left Maggie Blake's dead body. What a character. And all for a few measly dollars. 30,000. I even thought he'd get away with it. You'd suspect Josie and Pete Johnson of Maggie's murder and he'd be... Mike, you didn't tell me how he got to Pete to kill him. I guess I'll have to, won't I? Well, he followed them to their apartment after they left the office. Yes. Then he phoned Josie and told her to help him frame Pete. She came back to the palace looking for me. Well, the rest is history. Yes, but Mike, what made you suspect Benny? Two things, sweetheart. Josie had a chance to kill me and didn't. And Benny going for the money in the wall. Uh, can I go to sleep now, dear? One more thing. What happened to Josie? She was picked up. Now, darling... All right, honey. Mike. Hmm? Is this your wallet? Where'd you get it? Out of your hip pocket. For a member of the pickpocket squad, you are about the easiest pickings I've ever known. Good night, dear. After Crime Club went off the air at 10.30, WOR alternated news and late-night music until Eddie Newman went on the air at 2 a.m., Crime Club failed to generate any sponsorship support for the Mutual Broadcasting System and was canceled after its October 16, 1947 episode. Barry Thompson would pass away unexpectedly of a heart attack on August 19, 1960. And so closes tonight's story, Coney Island Nocturne. Stedman Coles wrote the radio script, Roger Bauer produced and directed Walter Kinsella played Mike Donahue. Joan Alexander was Helen O'Malley. Jean Ellen was heard as Josie Johnson. Bill Quinn was Peter Johnson. And Joseph Julian was Benny Gould. Oh, I beg your pardon. Hello, I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Yes, this is the crime club. I'm the librarian. Yes, come over a week from tonight. Good. We have the very exciting story of a sparkle that bloomed into murder. It's called Death Deals a Diamond.
In the meantime... Well, in the meantime, there is a new Crime Club book available this week and every week at bookstores everywhere. Yes, it's available now. Fine. And we'll look for you next week. This program came from New York. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. In your opinion, when did radio begin to decline? As television began to ascend. You have much of a chance to go into television, as many of your peers did at that time. I did the first dramatic show that CBS ever did. <laughs> you were a real pioneer in every sense of the word. Yeah, it was a 12-minute thing. There was only one stationary camera. You couldn't move it to follow the actors, you know. It was like almost like a stage production. Yeah. I think it was the late 40s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I remember there were only about 200 experimental television sets in the city at that time. They were programming these things experimentally, you know. And I remember the director took us over to his house afterwards, and there was a fight on television. It was a championship fight of some kind. I forget who was fighting but the only way you could tell the uh, difference between the two boxers was one had white shorts and the other had dark shorts. The images were so unclear. Yeah, this had to go back probably to the late 30s, I would think. That would seem to me late 40s would... No, it came back, it, it was right after I came back from England, uh-huh. which was in 1942. Mm-hmm. Oh, I said late 40s. Yeah. I, I was yeah. wrong. Yes, you're right about that. Well, at any rate, you did make it successfully over into television. You're uh, very much a part of the television scene today. And what part do you play on Somerset, the uh, daytime NBC soap? I play Vic Kirby, kind of a mysterious, interesting handyman figure who could be up to no good or not. Written and directed by Robert Arthur and David Cogan, The Mysterious Traveler first aired over the Mutual Broadcasting System on December 5, 1943. Mostly sustained, the show was heard on virtually every night of the week. It was cheap to produce, there were no major film stars to pay, and plenty of New York radio actors willing to work for a union scale. With that said, it was popular enough to spawn a comic book and magazine. Maurice Tarplin played the title role with a good-natured malevolence. The Traveler mostly narrated from an omniscient perch. He came to listeners in the night, riding a phantom train. The opening signature was a distant wail of a locomotive whistle, fading in gradually until the rumble of the train could be heard. The stories ran from crime drama to wild science fiction. David Cogan later recalled that he broke into radio with Bulldog Drummond, The Shadow, and Thin Man Scripps. He met Robert Arthur in Greenwich Village, suggesting they team up. The pair developed Dark Destiny, which aired on Mutual from August 26, 1942 through March 11, 1943. They came up with the Mysterious Traveler concept and prepared three sample scripts. Norman Livingston bought it for WOR. As independent producers, 
they were paid a flat rate for the whole package. Any money they saved by using the same actors in multiple roles went into their own pockets, so they used the best character actors in New York radio. Kogan also directed the series. Mutual presents The Mysterious Traveler, written, produced, and directed by Bob Arthur and David Kogan. This is The Mysterious Traveler, inviting you to join me on another journey into the realm of the strange and terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip that it will thrill you a little and chill you a little. So settle back, get a good grip on your nerves, and be comfortable, if you can. Where are we going? Tonight we're going to drop in on Henry Norton, a man who saw death in every corner. I call the story... Death is my caller. My story begins late one afternoon in the luxurious office of Henry Norton, a stockbroker. Norton, a tall, dapper man in his 40s, is in the midst of signing some letters when he's called on the office communicator by his secretary. Excuse me, Mr. Norton. Uh, yes, Miss Perry. There's a Mr. Blair to see you. Uh, Mr. Who? Charles Blair. He says you know him very well. Charlie Blair? Uh, tell him I'm not in. I'm out of town. Tell him anything. I don't want to see him. I don't ever want to see him. He says he knows you're here, insists on talking to you. Get him out of the office. Get some of the boys to help me. If he won't leave, just... Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Norton. He forced his way in. I'm sorry. I couldn't stop him. Oh, that's, that's quite all right, Miss Perry. I'll see him. Hello, Henry. I thought you'd be delighted to see me. We haven't seen each other for seven long years. That wasn't nice not to have a chat with your ex-partner, was it? Well, I was awfully busy. I have a lot of work to do. You know how it is. No, I don't. Uh, I didn't know you were out already. I thought you had three more years to go. I did, but good behavior cut three years off my sentence. Well, that's wonderful, Charlie. I'm glad you're out. It must have been a terrible experience. You... You changed it. It was a little hard to recognize you at first. Perhaps the prison pallor doesn't become me. And my hair has turned completely gray. I don't look so good, do I, Henry? Not like you with a Florida tan. <clears throat> well, how's Helen? My wife's dead. She's dead? Oh, I'm terribly sorry. What'd she die of? She died of heartbreak. Oh, poor Helen. She was always such a sensitive woman. Uh, what about your son, Alan? He disappeared after his mother died. I don't know where he is. He never wrote me while I was in jail. Never forgave me for bringing ruin and suffering upon his mother. You see, he was sensitive, too. You've had a pretty hard time of it, haven't you, Charlie? Your sympathy is touching. Well, I, I, I hope you'll drop around again sometime when I'm not so busy. I'm not leaving yet, Henry. Uh, I've got some important work to finish. If you 
Come around in a week or so, perhaps I'll have a spot for you, something in your Don't line. Don't be so nervous, Henry. I'm not going to kill you. Not yet. Kill me? Why should you want to kill me? I was wondering how long you'd put on this innocent act. All this concern about my welfare, about my wife and son. Why, oh, you slimy rat. If it weren't for you, I'd never have gone to prison. My wife would be alive today and my son wouldn't be embittered against me. I swear to you, it wasn't my fault. Believe me, Charlie, I had nothing to do... You should have known do... that sooner or later I'd be freed. Do you think I was ever going to forget how you framed me? I didn't frame you. It was out of my hands. I couldn't do when a thing. When my wife thing. died and my son disappeared, I had no reason to live. Just one thing that kept me alive. A fine and beautiful vengeance I had worked out for you. I thought of you constantly as I tramped the prison yard. I lay awake at night, smoothing out my plans to pay you back for all you've done to me. Seven years. You can think of an awful lot of things. It was all Grayson's fault, I tell you. He's the one to blame. I nourished and built my hate for seven long years. I cultivated it as I would a garden, so that it isn't a hot, violent anger anymore. Oh, no. It's a cool, efficient hate that works by blueprint. I look at you now as an engineer would at something he must destroy. And you're as good as dead, Henry. No, no, Charlie, no. I can explain everything. Just give me some I time. I could kill you now, but you'd only suffer a few minutes, and then it would be all over. That would never equal the years of torture and suffering that I've gone through. But I won't disappoint you, Henry. I am going to kill you. But not until you've gotten a fair idea what seven years of suffering means. I tell you, Charlie, it wasn't my fault. Grayson made me do it. He made me water those stocks under your name. So it was Grayson. Poor Grayson went to prison where he got sick and died. He framed himself, didn't he? Come now, Henry, pull yourself together. You ought to be able to concoct a better alibi than that silly one. You were quite a brilliant fellow once. Why, with one swoop, you got rid of two partners. And you thrived during these seven years while I was away. I hear you're one of the biggest brokers in the city now. Climbed over the backs of half a dozen people. Oh, look, Charles, let's be reasonable. I'll give you an important position in my company. It'll be a good-paying job. A job? What for? What do I want money for? I have no family, no one to work for, care for. I have only one thing left in my life. And that, Henry, is to see you go to the next world in the most agonizing way possible. Goodbye, Henry. You can spend the rest of the afternoon most profitably by making out your will. <laughs> Henry Norton's cold and clammy hands were trembling as Charles Blair left his office. The impact of seeing this ghost from his past left Henry's mind in a whirl of confusion. His mind turned to flight, but that was impossible. His money, his very life was wrapped up in his business. He couldn't flee. His brain in a turmoil, unable to do any work, Henry got his hat and coat and left his office. He arrived home, badly unnerved, and retired to his study to give the problem of Charles Blair further thought, but he was interrupted. 
Uh, see who that is, Miss Dean. Uh, if it's Mr. Blair, don't let him in. I'm never into him, understand? Yes, Mr. Norton, I understand. How do you do, madam? Is this the Norton home? Yes. What can I do for you? I'm Mr. Madden. I'd like to see the head of the household. Just a moment, please. Uh, who is it? He says his name is Madden. Madden? I don't know anybody by that name. Uh, has he got gray hair? No, Mr. Norton. His hair is black. Oh, all right. All right, I'll see him. Did you want to see me, sir? Uh, yes, sir. Are you Mr. Norton? Yes, I am. All right, boys, bring it in. I just, just put it down by the door for the moment, boys. That's it. Hey, what's going on here? Uh, why are you bringing a coffin into my apartment? Who are you? Well, now, if you please, I'd like to see the body. Body? What body? What's this all about? What's this coffin doing here? We've come for the body of Henry Norton. Why, you must be crazy. I'm Henry Norton. You? I'm sorry. I must have gotten the names confused. Uh, what was your brother's name? I have no brother. And there's no body in this house. If this is some stupid joke. I don't think it's funny at all. I'm not in the habit of playing jokes, sir. I've been an established undertaker for many years. Here's my card. Well, the devil take your card. Who put you up to this? Some man came to my parlor yesterday and arranged for the funeral of Henry Norton. He paid for everything in advance. Some man? What was his name? He didn't leave any name. Charlie Blair. What did he look like? Remember rather tall, I think. His hair had turned white. Blair. So it was Blair trying to frighten me. Get out. Get out of here, you stupid fools. Take that coffin back with you. I'm not used to being spoken to like that, Mr. Norton. Get out of here before I throw you out. Come on, boys. Here, wait a minute. Don't leave that coffin here. It's all paid for, Mr. Norton. It's yours now. Keep it. You might need it sometime. Before Henry could call Matt and the undertaker back, he was gone. Henry turned from the door and stared at the new coffin on the floor. It even had a plate on it with his name engraved. Unable to stand the sight of the coffin, Henry fled to his study and locked himself in. Unable to sleep, he spent the night trying to think of a way to escape Charles Blair's vengeance. The following morning found Henry haggard and distraught and no closer to a solution of his problem. As he ate a tasteless breakfast, the doorbell rang. Miss Dean, the housekeeper, went to the door. A minute later, she returned. Who was that, Miss Dean? It was the postman, Mr. Norton. His special delivery package came for you. Oh, oh, it must be the new field glasses I ordered. Here, let me have it. Huh. Nice of them to wrap it in the gift box. Kind of a small box, though. Huh. Guess it isn't the binoculars, after all. Someone sent you a gift. <laughs> Probably one of my clients. Wait a minute. You hear anything? Hear what? It's ticking. I'll put it to your ear. Listen. Yes, uh, I hear it now. It's throbbing. It's a time bomb. Oh. Somebody's trying to kill me. A time bomb? Oh. It'll go off any minute. Well, what are we going to do? Here, take it. Throw it away. Where? Uh, out of the window, anyplace. No, no, no. There's people outside. Don't stand there like an idiot. Throw it out. Well, I'll throw it in the bathtub. Hurry before we get blown to bits. Oh, dear, I hope it doesn't explode in my hand. 
This episode, Death is My Caller, featured Santos Ortega, Agnes Young, Ted Jewett, and Neil O'Malley. Along with the mysterious traveler, Kogan and Arthur also wrote a season of Nick Carter, The Strange Doctor Weird, The Sealed Book, and later Murder by Experts. Ten minutes later, a police car raced up to the house and the doorbell rang. The Mysterious Traveler would air until September of 1952. We're from the bomb and alien squad. Where's the package? It's in the bathtub. I turned the faucet on. That won't do any good, lady. Where's the bathroom? That door on your left. All right, you stay here. Jim, you come along with me. Okay, here's the bathroom. You better stand back a little, Jim. I'll take a look at it myself. Well, uh-huh. it isn't ticking anymore. Might be safe to open it now. Well, here goes. Why? Why, it's only an alarm clock. Someone must have wound it up before he sent it out. Now, who'd want to do a fool thing like that? That night, Henry Norton found it hard to sleep. He tossed and turned for hours, and it seemed he had hardly closed his eyes before he awoke with a start, certain there was someone in the room. Mystery is my hobby. Ladies and gentlemen, Barton Drake speaking. For tonight's drama, I've selected case history number 123 from my book, Mystery is My Hobby. I call it, Death Speaks with Ten Fingers. Mystery is My Hobby originally came to Don Lee's West Coast Airwaves in April of 1945, before going full network over Mutual that October as Murder is My Hobby. It starred Glenn Langan as Barton Drake, a police investigator and author of the book, Mystery is My Hobby. Drake combined his professions by collecting material for stories while he solved crimes. The program went off the air in July of 1946, but returned the next summer under the mystery title. Barton Drake was now a writer who worked with the police. Each episode was presented as cases from his book. Oh, that's where my money's been going, is it? I thought as much. Oh, now, Blanche, I only took a little. A little? Do you call $5,000 a little? And don't forget, most of that's mine. I had it before I married you. But Blanche, I didn't... Oh, yes, you did. I'm sending out this suit of yours to be cleaned, and what do I find? A lot of betting tickets on the horses. Oh, what, Blanche, I never bet on a horse in my life. I wouldn't know how. Don't lie to me. You lost that money gambling. And I know where, too. The sportsman's club. The place that's run by that deaf man. Well, I... I admit I do go to the sportsman's club once in a while, but but I don't bet on the horses. I'm going down there right now and get that money back. Now, look, Blanche, you don't think for a minute that Ted Wallace will hand over 5000 just because you ask for it. He'd better. You know how I am when I'm mad. And I'm taking a gun along. You stay here until I get back, if you know what's good for you. Holy smoke. I've got to get hold of Rose. Guy. Hey, look, kid. Something's gone wrong. Yeah. 
Yeah, she found him all right. Then, now wait a minute. She didn't react like we thought she would. No. Well, she's she's coming down there to the club. Well, you better get him out of there. Yeah, yeah, you get out too. Yeah, but I'm telling you, she's coming down there. She's coming down to kill your boss. The October 29th, 1947 episode was called Death Speaks with Ten Fingers and guest starred Barney Phillips, Gloria Blondell, Ken Christie, and Jean Van Pyle, who was later famous as the voice of Wilma Flintstone. Just as soon as I could, God. He got out before Blanche showed up? Oh, yeah. Got out. Ted, too, huh? Yeah. Gee, Rose, I'm sorry it worked out this way, but... I just couldn't take your money all in a lump sum. She, she'd have had me thrown in the can. I never did think it'd work. I figured if I took it a little at a time, she'd think I spent it. Didn't want her to find out about you and me. She hasn't, has she? Oh, no, no. Those betting tickets you put in my pocket fix that. She thinks I've been gambling on the horses. Oh. Well, that's what we wanted. Yeah, but it didn't work out that way. Instead of getting mad at me and getting a divorce, she's going after Ted. Well... We'll just have to figure out some other way. You know, I kind of wish you hadn't got Ted out of there. I wish you would kill him. I wish you'd taken the whole thing at once. She might have killed him six months ago. Then we'd have 5,000 bucks instead of this 2,500 we have now. Dirty blackmailer. Well, I warned you about Ted. Oh, sure, it's my fault. It's always my fault. Everything's always my fault. Well, you insisted in hanging around the joint all the time. Ted was bound to get suspicious and ask questions. You know he's always looking for an angle where he can make money for himself. Well, how was I to know that a guy who couldn't hear or talk could find out anything? Well, he can read lips. Oh, you ought to know that. I know that now. So he makes you give him half the dough or he'll go tell your wife. Where'd Ted go, do you know? Yeah. Over to... Pete Millar's apartment. Pete Millar? Mm-hmm. Oh, holy smoke, that's the other guy who talks with his fingers. Yeah. But, but that's the guy Ted was selling those phony racing tips to. I know. Ted cleaned them out. I thought they were mad at each other. Oh, they are. Pete was in the joint yesterday. He swore he'd kill Ted the very next time he saw him. I know. I saw him spell it out in sign language. Well, then what did you want to send Ted over there for? Uh, can't you guess? <sighs> Rose, you're wonderful. Mm-hmm. Hey, wait a minute. Ted won't go over there, not if he knows Pete will kill him. Mm, but I told him that Pete sent word he wanted to apologize. That he was sorry and wanted to buy some more tips on the horses. Honey, you sure got ahead on you. Well, things might work out all right after all. It's a nice spring day, still warm, even if the sun has gone behind the tall buildings that surround the police station. Barton Drake walks briskly along, his mind in the clouds, thinking of a snag he's run into in the development of the plot for his new book. It isn't faith that's led his steps to this place. It must be his subconscious mind, because all of a sudden he looks up and discovers where he is. By George, the very thing. (laughs) I didn't think of it before. Well, that's the good inspector. Quickly, he runs up the steps. Only to meet the good inspector who comes slamming out the door. 
Inspector, the very man I want to see. I can't stop now, Bart. I got a lot of business. Oh, now, Inspector, surely you can give me just a minute. I've given you many hours of my time. Well, what do you want? But make it snappy. I'm stuck, Inspector. In my new book, I want a murder to look like suicide. I want the victim to leave a suicide note. But there has to be a clue in the note that proves the thing to be murdered. <laughs> Things like that don't happen in real cases. Well, i got to be going. Inspector, surely in some of your cases you run into something like that. Look, Bart, we just got word of a double suicide, maybe a double murder, hmm? or a suicide and murder. How do I know? There are two dead people, and I haven't seen them yet. Well, maybe they left themselves to death, huh? Uh-huh. Not these two guys. Neither of them can hear or talk. Naturally, Inspector, nobody can when they're dead. They're... These guys couldn't do it before they were dead. They were both deaf and dumb. That's right. Who are the inspector? Ted Wallace, the guy who runs the sportsman's club. He's a bookie, you know. Yes, I'm a friend of his by the name of uh, Pete Millar. Well, where did this happen? In Millar's apartment. Neighbor heard three shots, peeked in the window, and saw two bodies stretched out on the floor. Now, that's all I know, so help me. And goodbye. I, I, I got work to do. The inspector, uh, can't I come to... Now, look, Bart. This time, it's strictly police business. But the setting, it's so bizarre. I... Look, inspector, I've got to come along. Well, all right. If you'll promise just to stand around and watch. I promise, Inspector. Okay. I'll remember that. Thank you, Inspector. Come on. Yeah, here they are, just like the guy said. You know which is which, Inspector? I ought to. I've run this guy Wallace in enough times. This is him here. Hmm. Two bullet holes. Yeah. Hard at close range, too, Bart. See, powder burns. One entered his shoulder, the other his head. That's the one that had his number on it. This one's Millar. Only one bullet. Which accounts to the three shots. <laughs> right through the heart. That one had a number on it, too. Also powder burns. Well, that's kind of funny. How could both of them have powder burns and still be lying almost 20 feet apart? Well, I'd... Uh... Hey, 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 just hmm? a minute. You're only supposed to be watching. I'll do the deducting. Oh, I'm sorry, Inspector. Well... Yeah. Now, the way I see it, Millar here shot Wallace. First bullet didn't kill him, so he fired another shot in his head at close range. Then Millar walked over here, shot himself. That had to count for the powder mark. And to prove it, here's a gun, a thirty-eight, lying here right where he dropped it when he died. How's that, Bart? Uh, I'm just watching. Yeah. What's this over here on the table, Inspector? What? This piece of paper. How should I know? Looks like a note. Well, read it. Okay, if, uh... I have your permission. Go ahead. Thank you. It's all right. This is too much. I bought a lot of racing tips from Ted Wallace, and all of them were fakes. Wallace came here this afternoon, and I accused him. He said I was wrong, so I bought one more tip. It was for the third race. Mm -hmm. To make sure I made him stay here till the race had been run, the horse didn't win. This tip was a fake just like all the rest. So I killed him. Well, then I killed myself. I'm broke. I have no further reason to live. Goodbye. <laughs> Signed, Pete Millar. See what I told you, by? Checks. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Inspector, what time did the neighbor hear the shots? 3.30, the guy said. That checks, too. Condition of the body shows that they've been dead about an hour. Mm-hmm. It's always handy to know the exact time the murder was committed. Murder and suicide, Barton. Yes, excuse me, Inspector. Murder and suicide. Well, you want to see any more? Sure, sure, sure. Now, don't rush me. Now, look, here's some uh, cigar butts here in the ice tray. Mm-hmm. 
What does that prove? Well, that, uh, that, uh... That the gentleman smoked cigars. You're quite right, Inspector. It proves that these guys did just what the note says. They waited here quite a while for the race to be run. Now I better look through their pockets. Hmm. While you're doing that, Inspector, may I, uh, have your permission to make a phone call? Sure, sure. Go ahead. Thank you so much. Yeah. Here's something in Wallace's billfold. What, Inspector? Identification card. Says, in case of accident, please notify Miss Rose Hope, 3436 Bell Street. That's probably his girlfriend. Hello, Joe? Barton Drake speaking. Fine, thanks. Look, Joe, can you give me the exact time the third race finished? Now, look, Bart, don't try to gum this up. What was that? 324, huh? Now, look, Joe, that's the exact time on the minute. Thanks. Thanks very much, Joe. The third race was run at exactly 3.24, Inspector. And what does that prove? I don't know. I thought perhaps you'd like to know. <laughs> Marge, you kill me. That checks again. Millar found out that his horse didn't win at 3.24. So he had his little argument, and he shoots Wallace about five or six minutes later. <laughs> you can't fuddle this case up, Bart. It's in the bag. Yes. Uh, don't you think we should go out and call on this Rose Pope, Inspector? What for? Well, if for no other reason than to comply with the dead man's last request that well, we notify her in case of an accident. Mercy on a soul. On the frigid, blustery night of December 16, 1835, the worst fire in New York City history sweeps through Manhattan. Everything south of Maiden Lane and east of Broad Street at that time, the city's chief merchant district, and the one with the highest property value, turns to rubble. The fire causes the modern equivalent of a half billion dollars in damages, and the official investigation finds an exploded gas pipe near a lit coal stove in the offices of Comstock and Andrews to be the culprit. No public blame is ever assigned. But what if New York's greatest accidental fire was no accident? Coming to your favorite podcast app, Burning Gotham, the new audio drama about the fastest growing city in the world and the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, please subscribe to this audio feed or go to burninggotham.com.
They did wonderful things in those days, and not all the stories are apocryphal. They're true. Uh, they, the craziest are true. They undressed Bill Stern once, you know that Oh, story? yes, I was there. Bill Stern was one of the great sports catchers of all times, and he was at NBC, I think, at yeah. the time, and somebody went out and to a studio tour, and they, while he's on the mic, they yes. removed his trousers. Oh, yes. Two gun. Now, there's nothing he can do. He is on the air. That was so Frank he, Reddick. Did. They're yes. pulling his trousers yeah. down, and he's saying, in the meantime, the score on the Browns. Right. They pulled his trousers off. Now they go out into the hall. And there's a studio tour and say, by the way, you better drop by 8H. Stern's doing the sports. <laughs> and all these people walk by the window where he was sitting there in his shorts doing things. <laughs> Wonderful things like yes. that. <laughs> Setting the script on fire was an old device, wasn't it? Too yes, long? and then we did, uh, we used to do a lot of shows in front of an audience, all dressed up in evening clothes. I never knew quite why. Give it a dramatic flair, you know, the Philip Morris hour and things like that. And uh, we had a very dramatic director called... Charles Martin, who used to give very dramatic cues, and was he was, you know, the Toscanini of the radio so the directors. Would be aware he's and there. he'd see him in his dinner jacket doing all of this. I used to repeatedly pretend to drop my script and lose my pages before it came to my time in order to spoil his act. You see, because I'd drop all the pages, and we'd all be picking them up, saying, oh, that isn't it, must be this, and so on. And then while he was looking away, I'd get the real script out of my pocket, you see. That but, could be but, heart attack time. Yeah, heart attack time. But he gave us a rough time during rehearsals, so we felt he had it coming to us. But it was very funny sponsors in those days. Over and over again, radio actors would be barred forever, not allowed ever again to work on a show because it was a camel show and they opened up a package of Chesterfields or something. That's how seriously they took it at that, yes, at that time. Just the package in your hand blackballed forever. There's in radio, a medium where nobody could see anything. I remember once when I was in radio in the Midwest, the favorite device there was for the, because we didn't have a news editing staff or anything, we would just, you know, pull it off the teletype and the AP or UP would come in on the yellow sheets of paper and the radio announcer, Ed knows this, would tear it off and you go into the news and you read what the stories are. They would type in, they would get a, a sheet and in the middle of the news they would type in some horrendous obscene story <laughs> that you didn't know the end of it until yeah. you were about halfway through and then of course your eyes would drop down and you'd say in um, oh. Cedar Rapids, Iowa today, Mr. William Scranton went into the barn and all of a sudden you'd see what's coming <laughs> and you'd say, we'll be back to that story in a moment, but first and you'd... terrible things like oh, that yes. but you would be halfway through the story before you realized you'd been had have been listening to the Campbell Playhouse presentation of Jane Eyre, starring Orson Welles and Madeline Carroll. Mr. Welles and our guest will be back with us in just a moment. Meanwhile, you may have noticed earlier in our program that in speaking of Campbell's chicken soup, I referred to it as homey. Now, that's exactly what it is, old-fashioned and homey. We had an announcer. I had for years, I had a show for Campbell's Soup which was called the Campbell Playhouse, and we had an announcer called Chapel. Ernest Chappell. Ernest Chappell had a very earnest oh. and dramatic voice, and he used to rehearse his commercials very seriously, and he had, there was a running line for a year, which was, as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. Now, I had been sent by somebody <laughs> a reading copy of the Poulterer's Gazette in which Campbell's soup was advertising for old roosters. Now, as a matter of fact, roosters make the best soup on very old chickens, but we didn't know that. We thought it was funny. So I had my cast every week in dress rehearsal 
While Chapel was saying, you like Campbell's chicken soup, we were saying rooster soup right along with him. And he would say, now, fellows, you know I'm going to go on the air and I'm going to say rooster. <laughs> he did. He did. <laughs> I really believe it is. And so I say again, just as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. Have it tomorrow, won't you? In 1934, Chicago was the center for radio production. Writer and director Willis Cooper created a program for NBC affiliate WENR that drastically altered the tone of horror. Cooper had been writing advertising copy in the late 1920s when he entered radio, working first as a continuity editor then for NBC's Empire Builders. His idea was to offer listeners a late-night terror program at a time when other stations were mostly airing music. It emphasized crime thrillers and the supernatural. The first series of shows were 15 minutes and ran on Wednesdays at midnight to local audiences. It was called Lights Out. In April, the series expanded to a half hour. The following year, it went national. Cooper stayed on until 1936 when he left to write film scripts in Los Angeles wrote The Phantom Creeps and The Son of Frankenstein before returning for the final season of The Campbell Playhouse on CBS and The Army Hour on NBC. Then in the spring of 1947, a new opportunity arose in New York. Quiet Please debuted on Sunday, June 8, 1947 at 3.30 p.m. over the mutual broadcasting system. Quiet Please elevated the genre to high art. For the weekly lead, Cooper cast Ernest Chappell, The Campbell Playhouse announcer. He proved a natural, playing Scotsmen, oil riggers, drunks, and archaeologists. They were every man who got tied up in the otherworldly. Few supporting voices could be afforded or deployed. Those few were part of New York's radio elite, like Frank and Claudia Morgan. The cast was told to play it straight. It resulted in an almost dreamlike study in horror, like on October 27, 1947, when Quiet Please presented don't tell me about Halloween. Quiet, please. Quiet, please. Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called Don't Tell Me About Halloween. Uh, I'm going to kill my wife tonight, or maybe tomorrow night. I mean, I'm going to kill one of my wives. I better or something's going to happen to me that won't be good. Well, Halloween's almost here. Halloween's the deadline. And Candace has to be dead before Halloween. Only trouble is, I'm not sure I'll recognize her when she shows up. You ever been in Salem, Massachusetts? Place where they hanged all the witches? 
No, they didn't burn him at the stake. A lot of people think so, but they didn't. They hanged him. All except the man which old Giles Corey, they pressed him to death. Very unpleasant. Well, it was in Salem this particular Halloween that I met Candace. It was dark up there on the hill where the gallows used to stand. Dark and cold with a damp wind coming in off the sea. A few little lights you could see in the dusk only made it darker and lonelier and creepier up there. I remember how I shivered as I started down the hill to town. And I remember how I jumped when something that looked like a black cat jumped out of the shadows at my feet. Without thinking, I yelled, Who's that? My heart almost stopped beating because... Well, good evening. I'd been all alone up there. And then, all of a sudden, there was a woman standing beside me. You're the first human being that's spoken to me tonight. Who are you? I'm Candace. I... I don't know any Candace. You didn't. But you do now. You nearly scared me to death. Oh, I wouldn't do that to you. What's your name? Craig. You like me, Craig? What? Well, I don't know what you look like. I like you very much. Well, but I... Kiss me, Craig. Now... Kiss me, I say. <clears throat> you know... You're going to be a very nice husband for me, Craig. What do you mean? I'm not going to... Oh, yes, you are. When I say something's going to happen, it happens, Craig. But I... I'm not... Wouldn't you like to be rich, Craig, and have a beautiful wife? I am beautiful. You'll see. Wouldn't you like to be rich and wise and happy and live forever? Wouldn't you, Craig? Who the devil are you? <laughs> Why, that's a very apt way of putting it, Craig. Who are you? I'm Candace. Well, that doesn't mean anything to me. I'm the witch they didn't hang, Craig. Well, she was right. I am rich. Whenever I need money, which hasn't been for a long time now, I... Ask Candace when she comes to see me at Halloween time. I am reasonably wise, I suppose. I'm quite an authority on American history, quite well considered at the university here. And while I can't say I've lived forever, I have lived 253 years. Now, that's right. You see, I met Candace on the hill above Salem in the year 1694, two years after Cotton Mathis stopped hanging witches. Yes, Candace has kept her promise. I remember the way she put it, standing up there in the early morning, watching the mists crawling along the ground below us. You'll not see me now till another Halloween. And I can't tell you what form I'll be in when I come to see you again. But if you see a strange bird or a lost dog... Or any strange being at your door come Halloween, you say, who's that? And if it so happens the stranger's me, why then, I'll be home with you till the cock crows for morning. And I remember I started to speak, to ask questions, but she stopped me. For the time's short now, my love. And remember the words, and we've all the future before us. As long as I live, you shall live. <laughs> 
And below it somewhere, a rooster crowed. And I was standing alone on the hill. And a yellow butterfly was rising in circles above my head. I watched it disappear into the first rays of the sun. No, I didn't believe it either. And yet, we were only two years away from the witchcraft trials, and whatever may be said today, the belief in witches didn't die as quick a death as modern historians would have you believe. I was there. I know. Besides, I had married a witch. Halloween, 1695, a stray dog lay on my doorstep, shivering in the rain. I don't like dogs. I was about to boot the animal into the street when I caught a look in its eyes. I yelled, who's that? Well, it's about time. I've been lying there on that doorstep, freezing and nearly drowned without a stitch on, and you stand there and look at me like some great fool. Get me something to put around me and stir up the fire before I take my death of cold. And I do believe you were going to kick me, too. What did I ever say to you? Candace, dear, how was I to know? Give me that quilt! Oh. oh, she was all contriteness and apologies in a moment. But I can feel that slap alongside my chops from two and a half centuries ago. And our first anniversary was a very pleasant one. I was rather glad I'd married a witch. It had its drawbacks, though, despite wealth and growing wisdom. People around me in Salem grew old, and I seemed to stay the same age. I moved away, and the years went on. I moved away from Salem, and I moved away from Philadelphia, and I moved from Baltimore and Richmond and Savannah and a score of other places. I spoke to George Washington, and I watched Robert Fulton Steamboat chug up the Hudson when I was more than 100 years old and looked 35. And every Halloween, I welcomed Candace home for a night. One year in a farmhouse on an Illinois prairie, a red fox whined up my door. And it was Candace. One year, a blue jay flew down from a tree in Missouri. And another year, she came as a skittering little gray field mouse. And the year I came back to Wisconsin after the Civil War, a porcupine gnawed its way into my cabin on Halloween night, and one of its quills spiked me before I thought to say, who's that? And when Candace smiled at me, there was only a strand of yellow hair through the thick of my thumb. I remember she pulled it out, and it hurt. Years, and years, and years. Well, she's been a wonderful wife, but I never forget what she is. Once a year is getting to be enough. It was just 67 years ago tonight, before Halloween, you see. That was the first time she appeared before Halloween, 1880. Rutherford B. Hayes was still president then. Yeah, seems like yesterday. I heard something bumping against the front door, and before I thought, I called out, Who's that? I thought you were never going to call me. Darling, I didn't know it was you. Well, huh? don't people kiss their wives anymore? Darling, you, well, you surprised me. Suppose you surprise me. <clears throat> hmm. Well, 
How come you're so early, dear? Oh, I just thought it would be nice to surprise you. <laughs> you certainly did surprise me. Did I? You certainly did. What's happened since last year? Why, uh, nothing much. That's so. Uh, what have you been doing? I've been away. Where? Craig, you'll be better off if you don't inquire too closely into my private affairs. Being married to a witch ought to be enough for you. I'm, I'm just interested, Candace. Like I'm interested in what you do when I'm away. What? I am interested, you know. I don't know what you're talking about, dear. You don't? No. Don't you ever get lonely while I'm away? What? Why, certainly. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? You know what I'm talking about, Craig. I don't either. You forgetting that I'm a witch, dear? What? <laughs> you can't keep anything from me, Craig. Don't you know that? Why, I... Oh, I won't punish you, Craig. But you mustn't run around with red-haired girls. Why, I don't know what you... Oh, yes, you do. So I just decided to take that temptation away from you. Candace, what did you... Look over there at the window, darling. And I looked. And peering in the window out of the darkness was a frightened, tiny red squirrel, its teeth chattering with terror and cold. She's still got her red hair, dear. Candace. Candace, did you do that to her? Dear, no, no, don't try to rescue her, Craig. I've got other plans for your little girlfriend. What are you going to... Listen. Now come here and kiss me. Good. In March of 1948, CBS executive Davidson Taylor sent an internal memo expressing his interest in purchasing the Mutual Sustained series for CBS. You know, in the last 50, 60 years, I've gotten so I'm afraid to say who's that anytime. Taylor had a keen eye for talent, but nothing materialized. Quiet Please shifted to ABC in September of 1948, but never found sponsorship and went off the air on June 25th, 1949. It's 67 years ago that she set the wolves on that poor little red squirrel. It was once Marjorie... I've forgotten her last name. But I haven't forgotten what she did to me. They arrested me for murder. Candace let me stay in jail a whole year. I waited till the next Halloween, 1881, till a little screech owl came and perched on the window. This is Arthur Barrio with a summary of the news from the NBC newsroom in Washington. The newsmen who are tagging along with President Truman on his current political junket may return to Washington a tired bunch of boys. Mr. Truman's maintaining a tough pace. Today, for example, up before dawn. Up at 3 a.m., as a matter of fact, to greet Chicago political leaders who stepped aboard the train to visit him. Says Chicago's Jake Garvey, the president didn't say much. He was pretty sleepy. But when the sun came up, so did the president, to lash out once again at the 80th Congress. The Congress he charged as controlled by lobbies, bent on a boom or bust. This afternoon, Mr. Truman will speak at Dexter, Iowa. But along the route from Washington, he's been making platform appearances. The 1948 DNC convened in July with President Truman's approval rating as low as 32 percent. 
congressional policy on federal aid to education. Northern Democrats pushed for a strong civil rights platform, which the president was in favor of. Conservative Southern Dems were opposed. Moderates feared voter alienation. When the convention adopted the civil rights plank in a close vote, Southern Dems walked out and split off, nominating Strom Thurmond for president. They became known as Dixiecrats, hoping to force a contingency in the House of Representatives, extracting concessions from either Truman or Republican nominee Thomas Dewey. They're traveling the route which any future enemies could use, and they're flying as they would in combat, armed and loaded with weight equivalent to... The post-war strikes didn't end. On October 26th, the Radio Writers Guild struck for fair wages and for RWG guideline adherence by ad agencies. Their focus was the coming new medium, television. Negotiations would continue into 1949. On Halloween 1948, the presidential election was on everyone's mind. The night before, Thomas Dewey ended his campaign at Madison Square Garden. He'd run against FDR in 1944, losing, but received 46% of the popular vote. After President Roosevelt passed away, there were many who felt Dewey made a better post-war choice than Harry Truman. In the 1946 New York gubernatorial election, Dewey won by nearly 700,000 votes, the most in New York history to that point. Governor Dewey is host today to about 100 radio and newspaper farm editors. He invited them to his Pauling, New York home to obtain their ideas on what the farmer needs to remain prosperous. Henry Wallace is scheduled to speak tonight in Boston, and members of the Socialist Party plan to picket the hall. Meantime, Boston police will be on hand prevent any egg or tomato throwing, such as Wallace experienced recently on his campaign tour. And as the political campaigns shape up at home, turmoil continues over the assassination of United Nations mediator Count Benadotte. Tuesday, November 2nd, was the 41st U.S. presidential election in history. Truman was a massive underdog, with South Carolina Governor Strom Thurmond opposing on the Dixiecrat ticket, and another FDR VP, Henry Wallace, as the Progressive Party nominee and then announced that the 58-nation assembly will take up the problem Tuesday. But the Security Council will begin deliberations today. In Jerusalem, all of the city's 90,000 Jews have been placed under virtual house arrest. The curfew is being imposed by the Israeli army and is to remain in effect until further notice. Six military policemen are guarding the United States consulate, and two military policemen will accompany any UN car in the city. France has proposed that Jerusalem be made an international zone. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, the Arab-Israeli war raged on. Fighting started the previous November. It ramped up after Palestine was officially dissolved and Israel declared independence on May 14th. Count Benadotte of Visborg was assassinated in September by four members of Lehi, a Jewish Zionist group, one of whom, Chitzak Shamir, would go on to be the seventh prime minister of Israel. And was best known for his biography. Operation Hiram ended on Halloween with Israeli forces claiming to have complete control of Galilee. The fighting would continue into 1949. And in White Plains, New York, the public school system has added a new course to its education program. Men think it's a great idea. The Cold War was growing, with Americans investigating potential communist cells within the government, fearing the world could split into two distinct groups, those who supported democracy and those who supported totalitarianism. This is Arthur Barrio in Washington, and now, after a brief pause for station identification, we take you to New York 
where you will hear a forum discussion as a prelude to United Nations Week. of Post Corn Toasties welcomes you to the House of Mystery. By October 31st, 1948, the Mutual Broadcasting System's flagship WOR in New York was approaching its 27th anniversary. It was argued that no station matched its signal coverage. WOR Mutual was known for its cop shows, soap operas, and on Sundays, its mysteries. At 4 p.m. Eastern Time, House of Mystery signed on for General Foods. John Griggs was Roger Elliott, ghost hunter and scientist of the supernatural. The show was directed by Olga Drus, who guided the program along a fine line. Because House of Mystery was geared for children, it couldn't be overly gruesome or vulgar. I'm glad to hear it. I hope you're all remembering to stay outdoors as much as you can. Getting lots of air, sunlight, and exercise. Yeah, and uh, postcorn toasties. Huh? <laughs> I'm sorry, Johnny. I don't think I understand that. Well, that's easy. Get lots of air, sunshine, exercise, and postcorn toasties. I thought you said your mother wouldn't take postcorn toasties on picnics. Well, uh, at first she wouldn't. But you found a way. Yeah, <laughs> I found a way, all right. Without dishes and spoons, too, Mr. Enhan. Well, how can you eat post-corn toasties without a bowl and a spoon? Uh, you give up? I give up. Right out of the fresh protector box. Uh, just like uh, post-corn toasties was uh, nuts. Or candy or popcorn. Post-corn toasties are delicious that way. That's a wonderful yeah. idea. No fuss, no bother, but still you can take post-corn toasties with you on your picnic, automobile trips, or swimming parties. Just tuck a fresh protective box of post-corn toasties in with your luggage and eat those tender, crisp, golden brown flakes as you would nuts or candy right out of the box. And you can be sure of one thing. The special fresh protective box will keep post-corn toasties fresh and crisp until the last golden flake has been eaten. Thank you, Ruth and Johnny, for a wonderful suggestion. Oh, that's okay. And now I see it's time for today's Miss. The story I call A Gift from the Dead. It began in a hotel in San Francisco where I'd taken a room to wait for Paul Sheldon, an old friend of mine who was flying in from Kansas City to join me. Some weeks ago, Paul and I had been invited by his sister, Jane Kovarak, to spend a few days at her home in the beautiful but rugged Big Sur country, 150 miles south of San Francisco. We'd accepted Jane's invitation with enthusiasm as evidence of her complete recovery from the shock of her husband's death. For my thoughts were miles away when the bellboy knocked on my door and handed me a letter. It was from Jane. I opened it and began to read but I was hardly beyond the first line when a vague feeling of uneasiness crept over me. 
The note was brief and to the point. She was canceling her invitation. As the day wore on, I reread the letter several times, each time feeling more uneasy. And by afternoon, I found myself pacing restlessly back and forth, impatient for Paul's arrival. I was about to leave for the airport to meet his plane when a long-distance telephone call stopped me. It was a woman, her voice tight with panic. Mr. Roger Elliott? Yes? Who's this? My name is Craig, Miss Alma Craig. Yes? I'm Mrs. Kovrak's housekeeper. I see. Mr. Elliott, you must come at once. Mrs. Kovrak needs help. But I just got a letter from her canceling the invitation. I know. That's why I'm calling. We're in danger, Mr. Elliott. You must come. What kind of danger, Miss Craig? Click of the receiver, Miss Craig's voice was gone. Something had to be done, and quickly. I packed my bag, checked out of the hotel, and drove at once to the airport. Paul's plane landed as I arrived, and from the gate I watched the passengers unload. As Paul hurried toward me, a messenger handed him a telegram. He stopped to read it, and the smile of greeting quickly vanished from his face. I went through the gate to meet him. Roger, read this. It's from James. Paul, am cancelling invitation. Please do not come. Explanation follows. Jane. What do you make of it, Roger? I fly over 2,000 miles to visit her, and then she tells me to stay away. Well, you're not going to. We're going to see Jane, and I think we'd better hurry. A bank of heavy clouds hung over the ocean to the west as we turned onto Highway 101 and started toward the Big Sur country. As the miles clicked by, I told Paul about the letter I had received from Jane and the frantic phone call from her housekeeper. When I repeated what she'd told me about Basil Kovarak, Paul's eyes grew hard, and he spoke with an undertone of bitterness. Roger, I opposed that marriage from the first moment I met Basil Kovarak. I could understand why Jane was so completely infatuated. He was handsome, wealthy, and thoroughly educated, but to me there was something cold and brutal about him. Something odd and difficult to define. And he was proud, almost insanely proud. Well, the Kovarak name is an old one. A titled European family, wasn't it? Yes, Basil was a count or something. The last heir, I believe. Well, immediately after the marriage, he took Jane to live in the house where she is now. Oh, it's a strange place, Roger. Huge and rambling. Perched on a cliff overlooking the sea. Nothing modern in it except the telephone. Kovarak kept it exactly like, a, like an ancient feudal castle. Was he in business, Paul? How did he spend his time? Well, near as I can tell, he devoted all of it to preserving the Kovarak family traditions. He had no other interests. He and Jane lived there alone. No one else but the two servants, Miss Craig and a handyman, was ever permitted on the place. Not even I. That's strange. Certainly doesn't sound like Jane. Ah, oh, James, Roger. Why, when they'd been married about three years, I visited her unexpectedly, and would you believe it? She refused to see me. Sent word she wasn't feeling well. But I saw Basil. He came out of his library while I was waiting at the door. He looked at me with those strange, dark eyes of his. Then he approached me. I got the coldest reception of my life. Mr. Paul Sheldon. Hello, Basil. 
You have come to see my wife, I presume. Yes, I plan to see my sister. Mrs. Kovarek does not wish to be disturbed. And I, for my part, do not wish the routine of my household disrupted. We have nothing in common here with the outside world. And it is not our wish to change. But I don't understand. I've there come a no long way. There is no need to pursue the matter further, Mrs. Kovarek, and I do not wish to be intruded upon. Miss Craig, please show Mr. Sheldon out. So there was nothing for me to do but go away. And that's a pretty accurate picture of Basil Kovarek, Roger. He had Jane so completely cowed that she saw no one. Even her letters became stiff and cold. Well, Paul, you said Basil died a year ago. How? It seems that he and the handyman, a fellow named Christopher, were both killed when their car plunged over a cliff and fell into the sea. And Roger, I'll say this. If it's possible for any man to come back from the dead... That man would be Basil Kovarek. Paul fell silent. It was dark when we reached the coast of Monterey, and soon the road became a shelf with the Pacific Ocean far below on the right and the Santa Lucia Mountains rising sharply on the left. The highway twisted painfully along the jagged coast. And then I saw it. The house built by Basil Kovarek hunched up from the granite that surrounded it like a malignant fungus growing out of the stone. It was dark and seemingly deserted. We stopped the car, got out, and ran up a path to the entrance. Paul was about to knock when the heavy door inched open. Miss Craig? Oh, thank heaven it's you, Mr. Sheldon. And... Uh, this is Roger Elliott. Hello, Miss Craig. Oh, Mr. Elliott, it was wrong of me to call you. My mistress has ordered that no one be admitted. I don't know what to do. I'm sure it was wrong of me well, to don't call worry. You. you did the right thing, Miss Craig. How is my sister? She's all right, isn't she? Well, sir, she's hardly... Miss hard Craig, she's done oh. with the door. Hello, sis. Jane. I turned and saw a woman standing in a wide hallway with a lamp in her hand. For a long moment, I stared, refusing to believe that this could be Jane Sheldon. She was drawn and thin. The muscles of her face were held firm against any show of emotion, but her eyes glistened with a cold, unspoken terror. Oh, Roger, didn't you get my message? Yes, as a matter of fact, Jane, that's why we came. Miss Craig, leave us at once, please. Very well. I'll be in my room if you want me. Paul, you and Roger must leave at once. Now, Jane, we want to help you, and if you'll forgive me, you look as if you need it. I... I don't want your help. You told me you were fixing the house over, but... Everything's exactly as Basil always kept it. Yes, except the cats. Cats? Basil had a pair of Siamese cats. He loved them, and I gave them away after he was buried. Now I can't locate them. And Basil's coming back. Jane, dear, please. Basil Kovarek is dead. He's coming back, I tell you. Tomorrow's our wedding anniversary, and he's coming back. But, Jane, you saw him buried. Surely you don't think... What music? What was it? The jewel box. The Kovrak jewel box. Basil is in this house right now. Jane was terrified. 
She swayed and almost fainted as Paul and I helped her to a chair. Now, when she'd recovered, we urged her to tell us what was troubling her. She spoke slowly as if she dreaded the sound of her own voice. That music you heard is the Kovarak music box. It was filled with cut gems when Basil gave it to me. The day he died, it disappeared, and now he's brought it back. Jane, will you tell us exactly what happened the day he gave you the jewels? Well, Miss Craig and Christopher had gone to town for supplies. I was sitting outside on the terrace when Basil called me into the library. I went in, and on the desk was an exquisitely carved casket I'd never seen before. He closed the door and looked at me a long time before he spoke. We are alone, Jane. I'm going to show you something. An inviolable secret. Promise me you will keep it always. Of course. Today is our fifth wedding anniversary. In token of the occasion, I make you this gift. Oh, it's beautiful. One moment, Jane, before you open it. Contained in this box is the lifeblood of the Kovarak family. The key to Kovarak wealth and power. It is a grave responsibility. You may open it now. Jewels! Yes. Look at them, Jane. Sparkling and flashing. See, they blaze with a life all their own. The undying fire in those stones has been the symbol of immortality for countless generations of my ancestors. The jewels are yours now. And through them, you are bound forever to the Kovarak. They must be priceless. Oh, I'm afraid to keep them here. We must put them in a vault. No. They will stay here in this house, under your care. But Basil, they're so valuable, I'd it's be afraid. It's a timeless tradition that the wife of the Kovarak heir keep the casket of jewels. We will not break that tradition. Someday you may come to realize in what sense that box of precious stones means immortality. Basil placed the box of gems in my hands and walked out of the library. I took the box to my room and hid it in the bottom of the trunk in my closet. And always before I went to bed, I checked to see if it was safe. After Basil's accident, I went to look at the jewel box. It was gone. A few nights ago, I'd heard it playing. Basil, the last of the Kovaraks was coming back from the grave. Jane was trembling as she finished her grim story. Paul tried to reassure his sister, but he was little comfort to her fear-ridden mind. The flickering lamp sent fantastic shadows dancing through the vast dark hall. At 4.30 p.m., True Detective Mystery signed on. The program had a rating of 10.7. It was Mutual's number two overall show. Based on items from True Detective magazine, the series was sponsored by O. Henry Candy Bars. O. Henry, public energy number one. Yes, it's time for O. Henry, America's famous candy bar, to present True Detective Mysteries. <laughs> 
Henry, America's famous candy bar, brings you John Shuttleworth. This is John Shuttleworth, editor-in-chief of True Detective magazine, bringing you the case history of an actual crime. I'm sure that you've often heard the expression, crime classic. To be honest with you, I don't know exactly what that phrase means. But if you take it to mean that there are a few criminal cases so outstanding as to become famous, then I can safely say that today's case, which I call The Dream of Richard Lauber, is a crime classic. Started on Gertrude Schmidt's day off, which she spent on one of the numerous beaches outside New York. That yacht out there is a pretty sight, isn't it? Yes, it is. But you, you're even prettier. That's a pretty compliment, but I shouldn't listen. I don't know you. If that's all that troubles you, I can take care of it immediately. My name is Joseph Strasser, and I'm an architect. <laughs> oh, not so fast, not so fast. You're right. We should sit down somewhere where it's cool and comfortable and get to know each other. Oh, I don't think that... Oh, come along. It's such a beautiful day. There's no harm in a cold drink. My name is Gertrude Schmidt. And I will have a cold drink with you. Good. We should be friends. We both come from Germany. You too? Oh, yes. I came here when I was very young, but I've always wanted to go back. My father didn't want me to come here. He said I should stay home and settle down and get married. But I had other ideas. But you certainly believe in marriage. With the right man? <laughs> what woman doesn't? But you haven't met the right man yet. Not yet, at least. Perhaps you have met the right man today. You always talk this way to girls you've just met? No. Only to you. Because we're going to see a lot of each other. Home at last? It's about time. That's a fine greeting. And look at you. Look at your stockings. Don't I give you enough money to dress decently? I'd rather you made me poor than the husband of a slatter. Hold your tongue. You have your nerve coming here at 10 o'clock, leaving me to take care of the children and keep your supper warm for you since 6. How do I know where you've been? I was a fool to marry you. So you were a fool to marry me. I'll beat you until... What's stopping you? Ah, uh, give me my supper and stay out of my sight. <laughs> This is John Shuttleworth again. You wouldn't have recognized Richard Lawler as he wined and dined Gertrude Schmidt in New York's swankiest restaurants and took long walks with her in the country. He was again using the name of Joseph Strasser. He was a carefree bachelor, charming, talking of marriage. In a moment, we shall hear the path down which Lawler was to plunge with terrifying speed. But first, it's time for O. Henry. Jane, you look like the picture of anxiety today. Many of the stories unfolded from the criminal's viewpoint. The show was much like gangbusters in allowing the audience to witness the fatal mistakes that led to the culprit's capture. Borrowing yet another page from gangbusters, the magazine offered rewards of $500 and later $1,000 for information leading to the arrest of real criminals. Clues were given after each broadcast. These were highly descriptive, focusing on scars and deformities, and the show resulted in many arrests. The kind of mellow, deep-down eating enjoyment you always find in O'Henry's mouth-watering blend of thick, rich fudge, smooth, buttery caramel, crisp, fresh-roasted peanuts, and pure...
March, 1835. Paris, France. Dear Aaron, I have thought long about idea. It is the best way. I accept your proposition. By the time you read letter, I and Raya will be on ship to Quebec. I will bring one pound of my inheritance, rest arriving on ship this summer as we have arranged. We expect reliable guide to wait for us in Quebec. I will send letter when we reach land in America. Doskoroi Strechi, Countess Sorina Maria Derzinskaya Zubov. We must pack, little sister. It is time to go to America. Don't be fooled. Danger is coming. Premiering soon on your favorite podcast app, Burning Gotham, the new scripted audio fiction podcast set in 1835 New York City. Subscribe to this audio feed to learn more or go to burninggotham.com. Did you do the shadow from the East Coast? Yes, I was uh, from New York. It was always from New York. Yes. Never out here. No. Did you have to take a trip to the Orient to learn how to cloud men's minds? No, I managed to do that without, <laughs> without having to go to the Orient. The shadow never really gave the opening of the show, but there was that shadowy voice that... Yes, well, I did the opening and closing signal. The who knows mm -hmm. what evil lurks in the hearts of men. Do you think that we could get a 50-cent version of that? Uh, oh, yeah. It won't sound the same because I worked on a special microphone uh -huh. which gave it a, a filtered effect. But I can do it, I okay. mean, as far as that's concerned. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. The shadow knows. At 5 p.m., Mutual's most famous program, The Shadow, signed on. The show was in its 11th season on the air in 1948. Andre Baruch handled MC duties, while Grace Matthews played Margot Lane. Brett Morrison was Lamont Cranston. Halloween's episode was called Murder by a Corpse. The season's shadow rating was 13.2. It was Mutual's highest rated show. The driver simply falls asleep at the wheel. And the answer to this accident problem is simply this. When you were playing uh, Lamont Cranston, The Shadow, who <coughs> was your uh, lovely friend and companion, Margot Lane? Well, I had four. 
Marjorie Anderson was the first, and then Gertrude Warner. Gertrude was actually the last one. And Grace Matthews and Leslie Woods. I think Gertrude did it longer than anyone else. And then Agnes Moorhead did it with uh, Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. When I first did it, you know, we were live. Uh -huh. We used to work from the Long Acre Theater in uh, New York. Of course, I don't believe radio shows should be watched, but the audience just seemed to enjoy it. But it's such a small percentage of yeah. the listeners that it uh, doesn't, I guess, destroy the illusion. The forces of law and order is in reality Lamont Cranston, wealthy young man about town. Years ago in the Orient, Cranston learned a strange and mysterious secret, the hypnotic power to cloud men's minds so they cannot see him. Cranston's friend and companion, the lovely Margot Lane, is the only person who knows to whom the voice of the invisible shadow belongs. Today's drama, Murder by a Corpse. The doctor and the nurse walk through the white silence of the sanitarium corridor and stop before the door of room seven. The doctor peers through the small glass panel in the face of the door and nods to the attendant inside. The door is unlocked, opened, and the doctor and nurse walk in. Morning, Dr. Manchek. Good morning, Rossi. How's our new patient, Mr. Holden? We had a tough time with him in the ambulance last night. Dr. Adams had to give him a shot. Dr. Adams' report on the case is on your desk, Dr. Manchek. Yes, I saw it, Miss Wagner. Mr. Holden, I'm Dr. Carl Manchek, chief of this institution. You're lying. You hear me? You're lying. You're in with the rest of them. I'm not crazy. This is a trick. You're a spy like the rest of them. Same line all the time, Doc. You can't fool me with that doctor act. I know who you are. You're one of his spies, too. I know. Spies. Same talk all the time. Typical manic depressive fear fantasy. Miss Wagner? Yes, sir. Tell Dr. Adams I wish to see him in my office. I'll be there when I finish examining the new patient. Yes, Dr. Manchin. <laughs> You're lying. You're in with the rest of them. I'm not crazy. This is a trick. <laughs> How was I, Doc? You were quite excellent, Eddie. I know who you are. You're all spies, all of you. How'd you like it, Ted? Terrific, Eddie. You were terrific. Sure. Just say, ask the Doc here. He'll tell you the Doc's an expert. He'll tell anybody that Eddie Holden blew his top. Severe paranoia, Eddie. See, Sid? Paranoia. Paranoia. That's what the expert says. So severe, they got to watch me night and day. And who do they happen to pick out to do the watching? <laughs> Nobody but Sid Rossi. Neat setup, huh? <laughs> Doc, you worked it out like a masterpiece. Naturally, I specialize in uh, cases like yours, Eddie. Yeah, it was a lucky day I made the contact with Sid. I won't forget you two for this. Oh, you can be sure we'll keep your memory quite refreshed. Yeah. A $50,000 bundle is something to remember, ain't it, Doc? Don't worry, you'll get your share. But Doc, did the uh, telegram work? Perfectly. Fenty left on the 8.15 train. Uh, what about his wife, Claire? She remained, just as you said she would. Eddie, hmm? are you sure Claire knows where the bonds are ditched? Of course she knows. Well, everything's set for tonight. Yeah, all set. I let you out the fire door at the end of the hall. You just got to cut across the lawn to the rear gate. I'll see that the gate is left unlocked. I cover up for you here so as no one gets wise while you're out. The lead pipe said, Jenny. But remember, you must return before daylight. Otherwise... I'll be back. 
Now, uh, my gun, huh? Here you are. Eddie, you didn't tell us how you're going to handle that Bentley dame. That all depends, Sid. That all depends on how much Claire Bentley is afraid of a ghost. No, I'll be awfully worried about us. Lamont, we're over an hour late now. Margo, I don't know what made me turn onto this road. From now on, no more shortcuts. Don't look now, but your sense of direction is slipping. Margo, you're a front seat driver. Oh. Well, it's an ill rainstorm that blows no road sign. Lamont, what are you... That fork in the road ahead, there's a signpost. Oh, thank heavens. Mason City, ten miles. That's the right. Mount Cleardale Cemetery, two miles. The left. Margo, I leave the choice to you. To the right, of course. When we get to Mason City, we'll call Nora. Come on, that car coming down the road. Set it straight for us. I'd better pull over. Margo, are you all right? Yes. You sure? I'm just shaking. Come on, we'll see how they are on the other car. I was lucky I was able to pull away in time, otherwise our destination would have automatically been changed from Mason City to Mount Cleardale Cemetery. I'll take Manhattan The Bronx and Staten Island too As night descended on New York on October 31st, temperatures dropped into the upper 40s and an eerie fog rolled in. Police were on alert for mischief as children went trick-or-treating. The Halloween tradition was still seen by many as an act of begging and vandalism. In response, members of the Madison Square Boys Club paraded through the Lower East Side carrying a banner that read, American Boys Don't Beg. The following period has been purchased by the New York State Wallace for President Committee for presenting Henry A. Wallace, who will speak from Dallas, Texas, in behalf of his candidacy for the presidency. Politically, progressive Henry Wallace was making a dent in Harry Truman's campaign. On election day, Truman will still carry the city, collecting 1.6 million votes to Dewey's 1.1 million. But Henry Wallace will receive over 420,000 votes. It's this voter split that will allow Thomas Dewey to narrowly win his home state by 60,000 votes, giving the Republicans 47 important electorates. And tell me what street compares with Mott Street in At home, the mutual broadcasting system's prime time featured news and music. But at 7 p.m., literature's most famous detective took to the air from W.O.R. This is W.O.R. New York. 7 o'clock by Longines, the world's most honored watch. Product of the Longines Whitnor Watch Company. From New York City, the makers of Clipper Craft Clothes for Men and more than 1,200 leading retail stores from coast to coast present that immortal character created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes, starring John Stanley. (laughs) 
This week's story, The Adventure of the Uddington Witch. Yes, Watson. You say you saw a shadow dart into this forest after the murder? I did, Watson. And it was an extraordinary shadow indeed. What do you mean? I saw what was apparently a witch, Watson. A witch? Precisely. The Black Witch of Uddington. The local townsfolk say she still prowls this forest. Good evening, Dr. Watson. Good evening, Mr. Harris. And what adventure are you working on tonight, Doctor? One of the strangest and weirdest in my memoir. Holmes and I always referred to it as the adventure of the Uddington Witch. The adventure of the Uddington Witch. Sounds like something to raise the goosebumps, Doctor. Indeed it is, Mr. Harris. But first, Mr. Harris, I know you have something to say about Clippercraft clothes. Indeed I do. The day you wear your new Clippercraft suit for the first time... Your friends are likely to wonder whether you came into an unexpected... Sherlock Holmes peaked on radio between 1939 and 1946 with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce playing Holmes and Watson. They made 14 films during this time, and their rating climbed to 14.1 in 1942 on NBC. The next year, the entire cast moved to the mutual broadcasting system. They remained for three seasons until Holmes left for ABC. Basil Rathbone stayed with Mutual to star in a new series called Scotland Yard. Nigel Bruce stayed on as Watson while Tom Conway became Holmes. When the Semler Company discontinued sponsorship in the spring of 1947, ABC canceled the show. That summer, Clippercraft Clothing signed on to pay the bills. The program moved back to Mutual with John Stanley as Holmes and Alfred Shirley as Watson. By Halloween 1948, it was airing Sundays at 7 p.m. And now, Dr. Watson, what's this adventure of the Uddington Witch all about? Well, Mr. Harris, it took place in 99, as I recall. Holmes and I were taking our ease at Baker Street one evening when we received an urgent and certainly a bizarre telegram. It came from Uddington, a town in the Shire of Lanark, in the lowlands of Scotland. It was from a Lord Dunbar, master of Heathercliff Manor. It begged Holmes to come to the manor with all possible speed, stating that a witch had spirited away his mother in the dark of night. A witch? Exactly, Mr. Harris. A witch. Naturally, Holmes's curiosity was immediately aroused, and we resolved to take the noon train the following day. But little did we know, as we read the telegram, the tragic events were already in the making at Uddington on that very same evening. It began with Lord Dunbar in his study. Who's there? Who's there? Bruce? Hester? Why in blazes don't you answer? Didn't I lock my door? Someone has to disturb me. Well, what do you... <laughs> you! Witch of Uddington. I come to bring me the death and the witch's supper. No! No! 
scream? Yes, I was in bed when it came. Positively ghastly, too. Seemed to come from Uncle Andrew's study. Oh, yes, Bruce. Please hurry. Something's wrong. Terribly wrong. Come on, Aunt Hutcher. Let's have a look. Here's the study. Uncle Andrew. Uncle Andrew. Oh, Bruce, there's no answer. Then we'd better look in. The door's open. Like... Good Lord. The witch's revenge. Andrew. Andrew. Oh! You home. I was wondering when you were coming back to the compartment. Our train is due in Eddington very shortly. Unfortunately, my dear Watson, we're too late to help Lord Dunbar. Too late? What do you mean? I've just seen a copy of a Newcastle newspaper brought aboard at the last station. Lord Dunbar was murdered early this morning. What? Foully murdered, Watson. Found dead in his study with a steel spike driven through his heart. A spike? Good Lord. Does this method of murder suggest anything to you, Watson? Why... Why, no, Holmes, I can't say it does. And you're not up on your lord of demons and witches, my dear fellow. It so happens that the witches, as recently as 200 years ago, were believed to have tortured and stabbed their victims with pins, needles, and sometimes small spikes. Good heavens. It may also interest you to know, Watson, that the history of Lord Dunbar's antecedents gives this macabre affair a rather grim and yet fascinating twist. What do you mean? An ancestor of Lord Dunbar's in the late 17th century was one of Whitstam's most mortal enemies. As Chief Justice of the highest court here in the Scottish Lowlands, he hanged many a witch at Gallow Lee, or tied them to a stake on the sands until the tide came up to end their misery. Oh, Holmes, you're not suggesting that this is some kind of witch's revenge? I'm suggesting nothing, Watson, until I have a look at Heathercliff Manor and its remaining inhabitants. <laughs> As radio audiences changed, Holmes and Watson couldn't keep up. Mutual canceled the series in the spring. ABC revived it for one final season before the last American version of Sherlock Holmes series departed from the air. Well, what strikes me, Bob Chart, those figures that you just read from the city of Philadelphia, it's very obvious that if Mr. Truman has a chance of winning this election this evening, that he must carry the big city centers by overwhelming majorities, as the late President Roosevelt did for his four terms. However, your figures from Philadelphia show that in this normally big, overwhelming Democratic city, President Truman is leading Governor Dewey by only 2,000 votes. Well, that would seem to indicate at this early hour that as Governor Dewey piles up his outstate majority, as outstate Pennsylvania always goes Republican, that while the figures are not definite as yet, we may count on Pennsylvania being in the Republican column when the votes are counted definitely this evening. Another point, too, it's clear even this early this evening in the election returns, how little real, practical, political effect 
The new third and fourth political parties are having in this race for president. On Tuesday, November 2nd, 1948, the United States held its 41st presidential election. If you'd been tuned into the results early in the evening, you'd have been convinced that the pre-election polls were correct and Thomas E. Dewey would become the next president. NBC election scoreboard here, we find that Thurmond has two states definitely. You'd have been wrong. Thomas Dewey ran a low-risk campaign. His advisors believed all he had to do to win was avoid major mistakes. So Dewey spoke in platitudes, avoided controversial issues, and was vague on what he planned to do as president. But many Republicans disliked Dewey, feeling he was too cold and stiff, and surprisingly against outlawing the Communist Party. Believing he had nothing to lose, Harry Truman ran a feisty campaign. He ridiculed Dewey's platitudes and claimed communists were rooting for a GOP victory to ensure another Great Depression. Energizing traditional Democrats as well as Catholic and Jewish voters, Truman also fared surprisingly well with Midwestern farmers. When it was all over, Harry Truman's victory was considered one of the greatest election upsets in American history, garnering 303 electoral votes to Thomas Dewey's 189. We have. Uh obtained the results from the state of Ohio, which assures victory for President Truman and Senator Barkley. With Ohio's 25 electoral votes, President Truman and Senator Barkley will have a total of 266 votes in the Electoral College. This is the minimum figure necessary for victory. This figure, however, does not take into consideration the very favorable trends still developing in California, Colorado, Idaho, and Nevada. The final Truman-Barkley total will reach and exceed 279 electoral votes. It marks a tremendous victory for American labor. For to the organized political efforts of Amer the American labor movement, much credit for this victory must be given. But it was not labor alone which brought about this democratic victory. Tribute must be paid to the thousands of democratic workers who labored long and hard to get out the vote. And most of all, tribute for this victory must be paid to all the American people, working men, farmers, professional men, and civil servants, businessmen, and the millions of housewives who helped swell the Democratic vote. They showed that they are politically alert and completely able to judge candidates and political parties on their record of performance. The American people have shown what they want. They have given the Democratic Party a challenge. The Democratic Party will live up to its great trust. With simultaneous success in the 1948 congressional elections, the Democrats also regained control of both houses of Congress, which they lost in 1946. The next day, Harry Truman spoke in Independence, Missouri. Thank you, Mr. Mayor and my uh, fellow townsmen and citizens of this great county named after Andrew Jackson. I can't tell you how very much I appreciate this turnout to celebrate a victory, not my victory, but a victory of the Democratic Party for the people. 
inform you, Mr. Mayor, that protocol goes out the window when I'm in independence. I'm a citizen of this town and a taxpayer, and I want to be treated just like the rest of the taxpayers in this community are treated, whether you extend the city limits or not. Now, I thank you very much indeed for this celebration, which is not for me, it's for the whole country. It, it's for the whole uh, world, for the simple reason that you've given me a tremendous responsibility. Now, since you've given me that responsibility, I want every single one of you to help carry out that responsibility for the welfare of this great republic and for the welfare and peace of the world at large. And I'm sure that's what you're going to do. I can't begin to thank the people who are responsible for the Democratic Party winning this great election. Of course, I'm indebted to everybody for that win. And I'll have to just say to every single one of you individually that I'm going to do the very best I can to carry out the Democratic platform as I promised to do in my speeches over this country. And we have a Congress now, and I'm sure we'll make some progress in the next four years. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. May 1st, 1835. It's a cold and rainy moving day. Every renter in New York is out on the street looking for lodging. Most of the city's quarter million live below Houston Street in buildings, four stories or smaller. But construction is booming. Rich and ragged with furniture, wagons, carts, drays, ropes, canvases, straw packers, porters, and beer haulers. White, yellow, and black occupy the streets from east to west, north to south. Everyone I spoke to on this subject complained of this custom as most annoying, but all assured me it was unavoidable for renters. More than one of my New York friends have bought or built houses solely to avoid this annual inconvenience. New people are pouring onto New York's dangerously overcrowded streets by the thousands. seemed to me that the city was fine before some awful calamity. I said, Colonel, what in heaven is the matter? Everyone was pitching out their furniture and packing it up. He laughed and said this was the general moving day. Seemed kind of a frolic, as if they were changing houses just for the fun. Eh, so the well goes. It would take a good deal to get me out of my log house. But yeah, I understand many persons move each year. Rich and poor, many come to earn an honest living. Others for more nefarious reasons. And it's the perfect place to begin. Coming soon, Burning Gotham. 
new scripted audio fiction series about the fastest growing city in the world and the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, please subscribe to this audio feed or go to burninggotham.com. The Mutual Broadcasting System presents Murder by Experts with your host and narrator, Mr. John Dixon Carr, world-famous mystery novelist and author of the recently published bestseller, The Life of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is John Dixon Carr. Each evening at this time, Murder by Experts brings you a story of crime and mystery. Murder by Experts debuted over Mutual on June 13, 1949. Written by David Cogan and Bob Arthur, it quickly gained respect and approval from the radio world at large. Mystery writers like John Dixon Carr and Brett Halliday, hosted with New York's best character talent, like Lawson Zerby, Ann Shepard, Santos Ortega, Ralph Bell, and William Zuckert being featured. This is from the debut episode, Summer Heat, which aired on June 13, 1949. Mr. Pentecost says of this thriller, the story has not only a twist, but an unforeseen double twist, which takes one completely by surprise. And now we present Summer Heat. Look now. But the old elms, the ivy-covered buildings on the campus of a small Midwestern university. It's a fine June afternoon when you hear laughter and the greetings of the reunion of the class of 36. Twelve years have passed, but none of the members of the class seems much older to each other. There's the dark-haired Paul Baxter wandering rather strangely there are two of his old friends, prosperous now, judged by their clothes, and boisterous in greeting. Paul! Paul Baxter! You old rascal! It's sure good to see you again. Oh, hello, Steve. Bert, this is a surprise. Oh, why didn't you ever write to us, Paul? You had our addresses. Why, sure. That's no way to treat old classmates. Just think, 12 years. Yeah. Oh, they sure have gone fast. Too fast to suit me. <laughs> Say, Paul, you've turned awful gray for only 33. Well, he always did take things too seriously. I suppose by now, Paul, you're one of the biggest lawyers in the state, huh? How's Marcia? Yeah, you were all set to marry her after graduation, remember? Yes, and you were going to become her father's junior law partner. Oh, you sure had a sweet setup there. Well, uh... <laughs> Things worked out a, a little differently. You see, that party we had graduation night. Do you remember it? Remember it? <laughs> How can we forget it? <laughs> oh, that was a real blowout. <laughs> and were you tight, Paul? <laughs> you know, that party, uh, 
<laughs> sort of changed my whole life. Changed your life? Well, how? Well, I, uh, I, I don't remember much about the party itself. I, I guess I had too many drinks. In fact, I, I don't remember anything until I woke up the next morning. I could hear old Trinity ringing. I awoke to find myself on the couch in my living room. It was noon, and the room was hot, stiflingly hot. I remembered I had a date with Marcia and her father at one o'clock. I got to my feet. My head ached. There were heat waves before my eyes. Feeling sick, I staggered toward my bedroom, and then I saw him, a man, asleep on my bed, his back to me. For a moment, I stood there, trying to remember if someone had come home from the party with me. But the night before was a total blank. I crossed to the bed, bent over, shook his shoulder. Hey, fella. Hey, it's noon. Wake up. Come on, wake up. As I shook him, he had flopped over and looked up at me with staring eyes. He was dead. And there was a knife in his chest. My hunting knife. I stood stunned, staring down at the body on my bed. The dead man was an utter stranger to me. He was neatly dressed in old clothes. And my knife, my knife was in his heart. I killed him. I couldn't remember when or how or why, but I'd killed him. Frantically, I, I tried to remember what had happened. Was he a panhandler? Someone I'd met on the street and drunkenly brought home with me? I didn't know. I couldn't remember. As I stood there, trying to get a grip on myself, I suddenly realized there was someone at the door. Instinctively, I walked into the living room and towards the door. Just as I was about to open it, I realized the danger of letting anyone into the apartment. I put my ear against the door and listened. I heard voices. Yours, Steve. And yours, Bert. <laughs> hey, Paul, open up. We want to say goodbye. Come on, Paul. Wake up, will you? We're leaving for California in 15 minutes. <laughs> I guess old Paul isn't in. Yeah. I wonder how he felt when he woke up. <laughs> Boy, what a head he must have had. <laughs> Still, I'd sure hate to leave without saying goodbye. Well, he has our California address. He yeah. can write to us. Come on, or we'll miss that train. Then they were both gone. I dared to breathe again. I tried to think calmly, figure out what to do. I knew I should call the police, but they... they might charge me with murder. And what defense could I offer? I thought of Marcia. The slightest scandal and everything would be off. Our marriage, my job, my future. I couldn't call the police. I couldn't call them and sacrifice everything I'd worked for. Somehow I had to get the body out of my apartment, get rid of it before it was found. Then he came to me. My car was in the basement, garage. The dumbwaiter in the kitchen led down to the basement. I could put the dead man in the dumbwaiter, lower him to the basement, get him in my car, and then... Mr. Paul! Oh, Mr. Paul! It was Jenny, the cleaning woman. She'd let herself in with a key. I hurried into the living room, closing the bedroom door behind me. Oh, there you are. A fine time for a rising young lawyer to be getting up. Oh, hello, Jenny. I... I... I guess I overslept. 
I was at a party last night. A party, was it? Everyone on the campus is talking about it. And the complaints. Well, now, step aside and let me into that bedroom. i got to start cleaning. Jenny, can't you come back later and do the place? No, I can't. Now, get out of my way. Jenny, wait. I don't want you to clean up yet. Paul, what's wrong? Why are you blocking the door like that? Well, the truth of the matter is... One of the boys had a bit too much last night, and he's in my bedroom, sleeping it off. Oh, well, get him out of there. Take him to a Turkish bath. Turkish bath. Oh, yes, that's that's a good idea. Look, Jenny, just give me half an hour to get him dressed and out of here. Then you can come back and clean up. A half hour, nothing. I'll give you exactly five minutes. All right, Jenny, I'll have him out of here by then. You'd better. She was gone, and I had five minutes, just five minutes. I went into the bedroom and quickly went through the dead man's pockets. They were empty. There was no identification in them. The thin, pinched face told me he was a nobody, a derelict, someone who might never be missed. As I was about to lift him off the bed, the phone rang. A shrill ring filled the room. Hello? Hello, darling. Marcia. How was your stag party last night? Did you miss me? Miss you? <laughs> you sound as though you have a dreadful hangover. Hangover? Oh, yes. Oh, excuse me a minute, Marcia. There's someone at the door. Yes? I'll be coming in to clean your room in another minute, Paul. Jenny. So get your friend out of there. Oh, yes, Jenny, yes. Just give me another minute and uh, we'll be out of here. Marcia, I, I can't talk to you any longer. I, I'm in a hurry. Then you haven't forgotten your appointment with Father and myself at one o'clock. No, no, no. I may be a little late, but I'll be there. Paul, you mustn't be late. I've told you over and over what a stickler Father is for punctuality. He can't stand people who are late for appointments. Well, you recall how furious he was when you didn't I know, Marcia, but I... You have 45 minutes to shave, shower, and dress. That's plenty of time. And, Paul, wear your gray flannel suit with a blue knitted tie and be sure you're there. Yes, Marcia, yes, but I've got to hang up. Jenny will be coming back any minute that I... Well, what if she is? Now, darling, you haven't forgotten what we discussed yesterday afternoon. Yesterday afternoon? Yes. Now, I know Father's brusque and inclined to bully people, but don't let it upset you. After all, it's our future he's... Marcia, I can't talk any longer. I've got to hang up. Jenny will be back. I've only seconds left. What in the world are you talking about? Now, when Father asks Marcia, you... I've got to hang up. I've got to. Goodbye. I hung up the phone and wiped the sweat running down my face. It took only a moment to lift him off the bed, carry him into the kitchen, pull the dumbwaiter up and put his body into it. I closed the door to the dumbwaiter, ran out of the apartment and started down the stairs to the basement. I got down to the basement to find Ben, the janitor, leisurely pulling on the dumbwaiter rope. Ben! Oh, Ben. Oh, hello, Paul. If it's your car you're after, it's there by the door, all washed like you asked. Thanks, but Ben, stop a minute, will you? I, I want you to do something for me. Sure, Paul, just as soon as I've emptied this dumbwaiter... Will you stop blowing that dumbwaiter? Stop it! Here! Hey, what's wrong with you? You're acting mighty strange. I... I'm sorry, I... I shouted like that, Ben. It's just that... Well, there's a package up in my apartment that I'd like you to mail right away. There's a dollar in it for you. All right. But there ain't no need to rush. Today, Sunday, the post office is closed. Closed? Sure. Say, what's the matter with you anyway? Must be the heat. Uh, something awful heavy on this somewhere. Ben, wait, wait a minute. There's something else. How's that? Stop a minute, will you? How can I talk to you while you're lowering that dumbwaiter? Well, go ahead. I can hear everything you're saying. Let go of that rope. Let go of you. Hit it. Hey. 
You're going crazy or something? I've half a mind to call the super and tell him why... No, 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 don't do that. I... I... Ben, uh, up in my apartment, there's a bottle. Bottle? Yes, I, I brought it home last night. It's... It's half full. I, I wanted you to have it for cleaning the car. Oh, thanks. I sure appreciate that, Paul. Uh, uh, I'll go up and get it as soon as I've emptied this dumbwaiter. It's almost down now. But Ben, Jenny just went in to clean. You know how she feels about drinking? Huh, Jenny? Jumping grasshoppers. Why didn't you say so? That woman will pour it all down the drain if I don't get there first. As soon as Ben disappeared up the stairs, I pulled the dumbwaiter the rest of the way down, opened the door, and he fell into my arms. Slinging the body over my shoulder, I staggered with it to my car and swiftly dropped him on the floor in the back. It was an old touring car. The top was long since gone. To hide the body from view, I, I covered it with an old blanket. A moment later, I started the motor and rolled smoothly out of the basement and into the driveway. As I did, I heard Ben shouting to me from my window. Oh, hey, Paul, wait a minute. I got something. I pretended not to hear Ben calling. Instead, I stepped on the gas. almost proud of myself as I drove past the campus. I was in trouble, but I was thinking fast, as a good lawyer should. I'd already decided I'd have to get rid of him by dumping him into the river. Murder by Experts won a prestigious Edgar Award in 1950 and aired until December 17, 1951. Very little traffic, and I was just about to speed up when behind me I heard a whistle blowing. It was Dugan, the town's only traffic cop, and he was blowing for me to stop. There was nothing to do but pull over to the curb. As Dugan hurried up to me, I realized I'd driven through a red light. Hello, Dugan. Never mind that baloney suit. On December 9, 1939, Harold Leopold, 31, switched on his radio in Colorado Canyon City State Prison death row and heard the final chapter of Hollywood Cherry, the current I Love a Mystery serial. Two and a half hours later, according to the Denver Post story, he was led to the gas chamber saying it was great. I got the final solution to the story just in time. I Love a Mystery is my favorite radio program. Leopold died for the murder of a Denver restaurant proprietor. That's Carlton E. Morris, creator of I Love a Mystery, reading one of the news clippings, one of about a million news clippings, I would say, that you have gathered over the years for I Love a Mystery and One Man's Family. People really turned on to your radio efforts, didn't they? They, they really did, and I'm awfully glad that I got in first on these things because it's a terrible competition these days. <laughs> I'm just as glad to be out of it. <laughs> well, now, you had done so much with the family, one man's family, and the real solid family life show. When did you turn to writing the adventure and the mystery of I Love a Mystery? Well, in 1939, we had been on... Uh, about seven years on One Man's Family? Uh, yeah, about seven years on uh, with the family. I suddenly began to feel I needed something besides the family 
wasn't that I wanted to give the family up, but I wanted to be free for a few hours with something else. So when an uh, advertising agency suggested that they would like to see what I could do in the way of a mystery, they said, write two or three shows what you'd like to do and give us an outline. So I chose three characters, Jack, Doc, and Reggie. I gave several titles, among them was I Love a Mystery, which the agency selected. They didn't even read the scripts, they just said, uh, okay, well, we've set up a date with NBC, it'll be five times a week. You mean just on the basis of the titles that you submitted? They, and, and your credentials as a writer? Well, of course, yeah. I've been writing for them, for Standard Brand, for yeah. five or six years. Were, you, were you employed by NBC or by the agency at, I was, at that uh, time, up to at, that point? Up to that point, and for quite a long time afterwards, I was on the NBC staff. Mm -hmm. Then, through sponsorship, I began to make so much more money than as a staff writer that I was released from the staff and depended on sponsors for money after that. Carlton E. Morse's I Love a Mystery first took to the air weekdays at 3.15 p.m. on NBC's West Coast Network in January of 1939. Michael Raffetto starred as Jack Packard, head of the A1 Detective Agency, with Barton Yarborough as Texan Doc Long, and Walt Patterson as the British Reggie York. The show told of three world travelers in search of action, thrills, and mystery, from the ghost towns of windswept Nevada to the jungles of vampire-infested Nicaragua. They righted wrongs, rescued women, battled evil, and explored unknown parts of the globe. By that autumn, it was airing nationally, the show ran from the West Coast for five years, first over NBC's Red Network, then It's Blue, and then CBS. It went off the air at the end of 1944, but was revived in the spring of 1948 on ABC, and then from New York for mutual broadcasting in October of 1949. It ran for three more years, this time starring Russell Thorson, Jim Bowles, and Tony Randall, as Thorson remembered. And the uh, I Love a Mystery thing was a complete shocker to me because we used to rehearse in the early days there at NBC on Un Man's Family in the morning. And Carlton and I would usually go down to the restaurant called the Down Under, mm -hmm. in the basement of the building, and have lunch. And we were having lunch there one day, and he was paid to the telephone. And he came back about five minutes later and said, uh, you want another job? And I said, what kind of a job is this? He said, how would you like to do Jack Packard on I Love a Mystery? He had made the set the deal over the telephone right then the lunchtime. <laughs> so then we started hunting for casting for uh, I Love a Mystery. Jack Packard was a hero with quiet strength. Once a medical student, he shrugged off superstition in favor of logic. Reggie York was educated, strong, and had the British stiff upper lip. Doc Long was a red-headed alley fighter from Texas who defied the laws of chance and loved women. Well, Jim, how did you get that role then? Do you recall? I think Jimmy McCallion recommended me. And I went over for a quick reading and went home and nothing happened. And then I, uh, I said, I should be doing that role because for years people had told me I sounded like Barton Yarborough. I never met him. And so I called up and said, I want to read again. And Carlton said, all right. And so I went in again and he said, do it. Oh, and so that's how I got Doc. Three characters could be murdered in a single episode, 
people were killed in ghoulish, imaginative, and sometimes mystifying ways. Throats were ripped out by wolves. There were garretings, poisonings, and mysterious slashings. We had a great cast on that mm -hmm. show, didn't we? Oh, you we had remember? a marvelous cast. Louis Van Ruten and Bob Dryden did most of the character mm -hmm. stuff on that. They could do voices, all kinds of voices, couldn't they? They were yes, terrific. They were, they were very, very yeah. Was that mutual? Was yep. that a mutual series? And you did that out of Mutual's uh, New York studios then? Yes, yes, out of Mutual's And was New that York. recorded at the time? Was that done on disc, I suppose, maybe even taped by that point? Huh? No, I don't think it was taped then. I think it was probably disc. It was probably disc. Mm -hmm. But we, it was done live, though. Yeah, but they would, but they would make They a, recorded it for distribution yeah. to other stations. Yeah, because Mutual had a different kind of a, a setup than the, the other networks, yeah. I know. On Halloween 1949, part one of a new story, The Thing That Cries in the Night, aired over Mutual. Mutual Broadcasting System presents I Love a Mystery, transcribed. Jack, a bunch of doggone heroes, every doggone one of us. Oh, oh, look here, Doc. Yeah, I know how you feel, Reggie. I wouldn't believe it myself. Only here it is, spread over the front pages of every newspaper in the country. <laughs> you believe everything you read? Well, of course I do. A newspaper wouldn't dare print anything that wasn't true. <laughs> Doc, you haven't done a thing but read those papers since they were taken on at San Francisco. Very interesting reading, too. Looky at this picture of me. Doc Long, the modern Tarzan, who slew a mountain lion with his bare hands. All right, Tarzan, fold up the newspapers. <laughs> what do you mean, fold up the newspaper? Stop reading that stuff before you begin to believe it. Remember, Reggie and I have got to go on living with you. Well, what's that got to do with it? You can keep patting yourself on the back, and you're going to break your arm, and we're going to have to feed you again. Hey, you know something that makes me kind of mad? I thought you weren't mad at anybody. Well, looky, we took on a new stewardess at San Francisco... And she ain't even give us a tumble. Well, why should she? Why, a pretty girl like her, she'd ought to be interested in a bunch of he-fighters like us. Oh, yeah. Now, look, Doc, you bored the other stewardess from Seattle to San Francisco with your story. Will you let this girl alone? Oh, all right. Of course, if she asks me, I'm going to have to tell her. Well, she won't ask you if she knows what's good for her. Doggone, I can't get over The insurance company are giving us 25,000 potatoes. Just for bringing Alexander Archer back alive. 25,000 good round simoleons. It was little enough. Richard Cooper killed Archer, the insurance company would have been out a million. Yeah. Now here we are on our way to Hollywood to live like three doggone kings. I still don't know why you wanted to come to Hollywood. Well, Hollywood is good as any place else to spend 25,000 smackers, ain't it? Yes, I suppose so. But, Doc, uh, we really don't have to spend it, do we? Of course we do. What good's 25,000 if we don't spend it? Mm -hmm. You agree with him, Jack? Well, it's certainly true that he won't be good for anything else until the money's gone. Mm, quite. And it is a bother. Oh, it ain't gonna be no bother to me. <laughs> Not for long, it ain't. 
What's the best hotel in Los Angeles? Oh, there's several. Yeah, but the most expensive. I don't know. Well, anyway, that's where we're going. Yeah, but Doc, we're not dressed that sort of thing. Then yeah. we'll get dressed for it. And we'll get the most expensive automobile we can find and eat in the most expensive eating places and go to the most expensive shows. And the 25000 will last us just about one month. Well, that's just about right. I don't think I could stand being so darn expensive much longer than that. <laughs> Do you like it, Reggie? Well, as a matter of fact, I don't. Now, there's gratitude for you. I work out a swell way to spend our 25000 Well, just think, Reggie. Folks are waiting on us, breakfast in bed. Waiting, uh, waiting around in pretty women up to our armpits. I was wondering when that was coming out. <laughs> pretty women? Yes. But Jack, that's the best part of the whole idea. Why, there ain't nothing I like. We know there isn't anything you like as much as a pretty woman. Well, they ain't. There's one thing, though. I'm just wondering with so much whoopee if I'm going to be able to get home every morning in time to have breakfast in bed. <laughs> <laughs> Looky, you fellas, promise me something? Well, let's hear it first. I want you two to promise me, no matter what happens, no matter what, you get me? That we ain't going to take no adventure nor solving a mystery nor nothing like that. Until, until every last penny of the $25,000 is gone. I see. You don't want business to interfere with pleasure. You bet I don't. You promise? Well, now, that's a funny thing to ask, Doc. Adventure just doesn't come up and smack you in the face. You've got to go out looking for it. Yeah, but I know Jack. He smells something and away we go. But if we do run into something... No, sir. If we run right smack into something, we're going to turn our backs and start walking the other way. Well, what do you say to that, Jack? I say the worst is about to happen. Huh? Well, what do you mean? That stewardess has spotted us. She's coming this way with a newspaper in her hand. Hey, that's all right. Well, get ready, Reggie, to hear the story of our great adventure all over again. Mm, quite. Hello, honey. Are you Mr. Law? Oh, that's all right. Just call me Doc. Oh, I say. Then this is your picture in the paper. Yep, that's right. And, uh, these other two men... Yep, Jack Packard and Reggie York. Oh, but it's wonderful. You're the three who were almost murdered and fought those mountain lions. Yeah, w would you like to hear about it? Dog. Oh, please. And that poor girl, Linda Joyce. You were wonderful to save her from the mountain lion the way you did. Oh, shucks. It wasn't nothing. Uh, sit down a minute and I'll tell you all about it. Oh, will you please do? It's his pleasure. You know what that? I say you don't know what you're letting yourself in for. Hey, Jack, she asked me, not you. That dreadful Richard Cooper and Dr. Thorne. Thank goodness they're safely in jail. Yeah, they're locked up so tight they ain't never going to get out. But there were so many of them. I mean, beside the two leaders. How did you ever get off the island? Well, while me and Linda was out fighting a lion, Jack and Reggie here captured Cooper and Thorne and locked the rest of the gang up in one of the rooms down in the cellar. Oh, you two should be so proud of yourselves. Hey, uh, what about me out there fighting a lion? Yeah, but after all, you did have a knife. It wasn't a very big knife. And anyway, I've heard that mountain lions are cowardly. <laughs> hey, when I got through with that cougar, I was in the hospital for two weeks. You don't look like you'd ever been sick a day in your life. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, I swear to Grandma, I ain't never seen a girl like you before. Ain't you impressed at all? Of course I am. The way Mr. York and Mr. Packard locked up 13 men single-handed... I think it's wonderful. Yeah, but maybe you don't understand about mountain lions. Mr. Packard, what happened after you locked those men up? Well, we found Alexander Archer and, and loaded him into the launch with Cooper and Thorne and brought them into court for us and turned them over to the authorities. Oh, but what about all the men that were locked down in that underground room? Oh, the police went out the island and got them. Well, well I suppose you know you're famous. Well, newspapers have to print something, I suppose. But I still don't see why they made so much of Mr. Long and the mountain lion. Hey, look, are you just plain trying to make me mad? Why, no. Of course not. Well, whether you believe it or not, fighting mountain lions ain't no child's play. Oh, pooh. My folks live on a mountain ranch up in Washington. 
My mother scares mountain lions out of her chicken yard by shushing her apron at them. Hey, that ain't so. I beg your pardon. Well, hey, I, I didn't mean to say that. I, I'm sorry, Don't only... apologize. I shouldn't have come back here. Yeah, yeah. But my mother did too scare mountain lions with her chicken apron. So there. <laughs> well, what are you two are sitting there grinning about? Too bad Cooper didn't argue with the kitchen apron instead of a knife, Doc. All right, all right. So it's funny. Now I come to think of it, Reggie, I wonder if maybe Linda didn't scare that lion to death by shaking her skirts Yes, out. quite. But in that case, how did Doc get those scratches and bruises? He might have fallen down a ravine. Yes, that would account for it, all right. Well, you two guys shut up. Well, naturally, he couldn't say that Linda killed the cougar. Naturally not. Looky, you two smart guys. I beg your pardon? Yeah. I'm a passenger on the plane. Well, so what? You look like the fella whose picture I got here in my paper. See? Oh, okay, so I'm the fella. What about it? Is it true you killed the mountain lion with your bare hands? No. It ain't. But it's right here in the paper. I can't help that. Then that mountain cougar's still alive? No, he ain't. He died of being scared to death. My goodness, you don't tell me. Sure I'm telling you. My mama come along and waved her kitchen apron at him, and he laid right down and kicked the bucket. Young man, you're a liar. Oh, you don't believe me. That's a fine way to talk to a gentleman. Well, if you don't believe me, just go back and ask the stewardess. She knows all the answers. Are you, gentlemen, this feller's companion? <laughs> yes. What's the matter with him? Well, he hasn't been quite right ever since we left the island. Ah, oh, so that's it. Too bad. Too bad. Why, that gum, you jack. Find a pair of sippy cats as I ever tied up with. Don't worry, Doc. There'll be a new batch of newspapers with stories in them when we reach Hollywood. Well, don't you say newspapers to me. Now, Doc. I'm warning you. The first newsboy that sticks a newspaper under my nose is going to get smacked right back three generations. <laughs> oh, I say, look down. Lights. You must be getting in. Passenger safety belts, please. No smoking while we're landing. Passenger safety belts, please. So your mama shushed a cougar with her apron. Yes, yeah, she did. First thing she knows, she's going to have herself believe in oh, that. Oh, Doc. <laughs> now we're heading into the field. There we are. Back on solid ground again. Well, there she is, folks. Burbank, California. Come on, let's get out of here and start spending some of that money. What do we do? Take a taxi? Pretty doggone right. To the most expensive hotel in Los Angeles. Some place that's close to Hollywood, though. Watch your step, please. Watch your step, please. Your mama sure enough scared a cougar with her apron. You're holding up the passengers. Please move along. Oh, so you're backing down there. I am not. Well, Doc, come on. Well, all I got to say is that your mama's one tough ombre. Oh, you're impossible. Take his arm, Reggie. I'm a-coming. Watch your step, please. A cute kid. Just as soon lies. Look at you, though. Quite a crowd outside the gate. Trent's got a little plane ready, getting ready to go out. I beg your pardon. Are you Mr. Jack Packard and party? Yes, that's right. This way, if you please. Yeah, wait a minute. Who are you? I'm the chauffeur. If you'll... Just get in that big black car over there. I'll pick up your baggage. Man, oh, man. Looky at it. A block long. Well, what's it all about? We didn't order anyone to meet us. You must be mistaken. You said your name was Mr. Packard? That's right. Well, then, if you'll please get in the car, I'll, I'll be right back with the luggage. Jack, I don't get it. Well, neither do I. Well, what do we care? Looky, it's what's in that a big old automobile. What's that? I ask you, did you ever see a prettier armful of girl than that? No. Let's climb in. What are we waiting for?
further transcribed adventures of Jack, Doc, and Reggie will come to you tomorrow at this same hour. I Love a Mystery, written and directed by Carlton E. Morse, comes to you Monday through Friday, featuring Russell Thorson as Jack, Jim Bowles as Doc Long, and Tony Randall as Reggie York. Frank McCarthy speaking. We're going to stop here, but we're not even close to finishing with I Love a Mystery. Listeners, I'd like you to hear a letter from a four-year-old girl. The little girl is a French youngster, and I can tell you that our writer and producer, Carlton E. Morse, knows that it comes from the heart. Perhaps you'd like to tell us why you know Mr. Morse. All right, Mr. Thorson, but I'd like first for Mr. Randall to read the letter just as it was written. How about it, Tony? All right. Dear Papa, I want all the children to be happy for Christmas as I am. Will you please help me get presents for them? Your little Jacqueline. That letter is from Jacqueline Complay, my French foster child. It was after becoming a foster parent that I realized the lack of any happiness and hope, which is the heritage of a million war children over there. Please listen while Mr. Thorson tells you what you can do to give these little ones a real Christmas this year. Listeners, start right away to gather toys and discarded but serviceable articles of children's clothing. Then here's what's next. Place them in a carton or wrap in heavy paper. Tie them securely with strong twine. Address them to Foster Parents Plan for War Children Warehouse. 530-47th Avenue, Long Island City, New York. That's 530-47th Avenue, Long Island City, New York. Take them to the Railway Express office nearest you. There will be no cost to you for shipping. Remember to do it now. And remember that you, too, can be a Santa Claus for all of God's children. Next time on Breaking Walls, while we spend Thanksgiving with Carlton E. Morse, Russell Thorson, Jim Bowles, and Tony Randall, we utter a simple statement, bury your dead, Arizona. The reading material used in today's episode was American Radio Network's A History by Jim Cox, On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg. The Museum of Broadcast Communications Encyclopedia of Radio by Christopher Sterling. WOR The First 60 Years. As well as articles from the archives of The Los Angeles Times, The New York Daily News, The New York Times, Radio Daily, and The Saturday Evening Post. On the interview front, Jim Bowles, Brett Morrison, Carlton E. Morse, and Russell Thorson were with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Joseph Julian was with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran of WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these at goldenage-wtic.org. Harry Bartell and Andre Baruch were with Spurvac. For more info, go to spurvac.com. And Orson Welles was with Johnny Carson. Selected music featured in today's episode was Halloween by Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians, Manhattan by Blossom Deary, Flag of Columbia by Jacqueline Schwab, and Danse Macabre by Camille Saint-Saëns. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac 
Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls episode 133 will keep us with the mutual broadcasting system as we celebrate Thanksgiving with I Love a Mystery by making sure our dead are buried in Arizona. This episode will be available beginning November 1st, 2022, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until November 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 132. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. <laughs>